It's a massive weekend in college hoops. Great night to be a boiler last night. Any talk about Purdue and the immediate reaction that occurs whenever they stumble, which is just three times this year, put to bed rather quickly in a dominant 96-68 win over Rutgers at Mackey last night. We'll get into that a little bit today as the show rolls on. Isaac Trotter going to join us at 1 o'clock. Nick Bumgarner going to join us at 2 and then we'll get heavily into the Pacers, not only this first segment, but also bottom of the 2 o'clock hour when Caitlin Cooper joins us. Does a great job covering the Pacers throughout the course of the NBA season. This is, of course, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison behind the ones and twos. Your regular first voice you hear on this program, Jake Query, in case you have not listened to the show this week, is on a little PTO enjoying Las Vegas, Nevada. And instead, we have a little bit of a reunion on this 12 to 3 show. You know him as the beat writer for the Colts, as well as the, I won't label necessarily beat writer, but the man of many hats over at The Athletic (laughs) because he's covered the Pacers as well. James Boyd in studio with us. James, how are you? I'm doing good. Obviously a little jealous of Jake. He's going to see you too. I know. I thought I was going to see Usher, honestly. (laughs) um, Should be a good time. He deserved time off. And obviously there's a lot to talk about here in Indiana sports, so I'm excited to be here. Well, we're going to use James, as you would expect, whenever we have James Boyd in, heavily, especially on the Colts section, which we will get into, have a little unique segment that Eddie's cooked up a little bit later in the show looking at off-season goals for the Colts, and with the Combine right around the corner, we'll, of course, get James' perspective leading into all of that in what is the first real step of the off-season outside of tags and should you or should you not with Michael Pittman Jr. We'll get into all that today, but we start first with the Indiana Pacers. Their opening matchup in however you want to fractionally divide the season. I'm used to just calling it the second half of the season because it's the all-star break, but as Jake informed me, it's really more of a third and a comfortable win for the Pacers, I'll say, yesterday, 129-115, to 115, though Detroit made little runs to make the game interesting, James, but it never really felt like it was in danger. No, I mean, Detroit's the worst team in the league, <laughs> so you should beat them pretty handedly. I thought the first half they were dominant, obviously. Tyrese Halliburton looked really good, but there are certain instances with this team where I wonder if they're playing up or down to their competition in certain stretches. And that, to me, is a little bit of, I don't know if it's youth, inexperience, whatever it is, but I'm like, man, some of these games – they make it harder than it needs to be. Now, the win still counts all the same, but as far as goals for this team, playoffs, winning around, possibly all those things, you have to be able to hit somebody with a sledgehammer and kind of keep them down. And I don't feel like they've done that since acquiring Pascal Siakam. Obviously, chemistry might be a part of that as well, but I guess a win is a win is a win is a win. For me, to kind of go off of that point, James, and I know exactly what you're talking about in regards to never really throttling an opponent. At the same time, It's the NBA. This happens. I was joking with Tony East yesterday that no lead ever feels safe in the NBA. Whereas in the college ranks, you know, it you're up by double digits for the most part. If there's eight minutes to go in the second half, you feel pretty good about that lead in the NBA. It could be a 30 point lead in the third quarter and that can go away in an instant. The most note for this Pacers team is, in that matchup against the Pistons, you know they're the worst team in the league. Eight wins on the year. And this ordinarily is my pet peeve. I can get away from it, James, because the Pacers won. Give up 45 in the third. Give up 45 and made 
Evan Fournier looked like Ray Allen. Like, I'm not saying Evan Fournier is not a good shooter, but like anytime he got an open look, bang, bang, knocking him down. That was yeah. it. And I think that is in large part where you would like to see a step forward for this group is not that they're going to suddenly become an elite defensive team, but continue to play high level defense in spots. And of course, they did throughout spurts of this game, especially to open it 42 25 after one. They weren't letting Detroit get anything offensively in that first quarter. And I'm willing to chalk up some of it to the ebbs and flows of an NBA game, giving up 45 in the third. But all the same, there are little areas this team still needs to improve on. When when you look at that aspect of it, is it defense? Is it maturity? Is it cohesion together with Pascal Siakam still a relatively new face and trying to adapt to life everybody healed? Where is that for you? I think part of it is... Like schematically, how do you make sure that you stick to whatever your game plan is? I'd imagine it's not giving up a ton of, you know, open looks. And to your point, you just can't have the avalanche quarters. They're never gonna they're not gonna be an elite defensive team. They don't have the players to be that. I mean, if they did, they'd be that. Right. <laughs> Quite honestly. Like a lot of things come down to do you have the dudes to do it? But I will add that you can't have a team like Detroit scoring 45 points on you in any quarter of a game and be a serious team. And I get it. Like you said, teams go on runs. There's still NBA players at the end of the day. But when I look at the Pacers now and they're continuing to try to make the playoffs for the first time since 2020, the goal isn't just to get there. And that was what the entire philosophy got shifted or changed because of when Tyrese Halliburton got here. You went from being a team that, you know, was referred to as a tough out. You know, I remember Herb Simon saying, I love my little team, like the little brother of the Eastern Conference to, no, we want to be able to contend in the Eastern Conference. And you contend by building good habits now. That way, later on, they don't come back to bite you in games that you really need to win. And so I think part of it is frustrating because they've shown the ability to, like, be engaged defensively, to, you know, have hot hot hands as I call them and, and and getting their hands on balls and even Tyrese had a couple of you know steals yesterday for back to back dunks. Those things I think can translate as long as you stay engaged with them. And so um we'll see. Obviously again a win is a win is a win. You take it and you feel better I guess going you know forward with with it. But I just think of all the praise that Tyrese Halliburton got over the all star break, all the confidence that maybe other people around the league having this Pacers team. And now you have to go out there and validate it because, and I like to get your thoughts on this, Jimmy, even Eddie too, but this feels like the honeymoon stage for Tyrese Halliburton, right? He can do no wrong. We love him. He's here. He wants to be here in Indiana, but you know, as soon as they make the playoffs and however way it goes, if they went around, don't went around, the narrative will shift. Not maybe here in Indianapolis or Indiana because people love the team sure. and they love Halliburton, but the national narrative as far as the praise. You know, I talked to Shaq this weekend and he was saying, or last weekend he was saying, oh, he could be the face of the league in a, in a few years and this this league should be his. And I'm like, he hasn't played in a playoff game yet. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear like what your thoughts are as far as that pressure to kind of validate everything we heard over the All-Star break. I think that there is a built-in extended honeymoon here for him nationally this season. To your point, because mm-hmm. they're going to be a playoff or play-in team. I, I think they're going to be a playoff team. I've said that since 
the beginning of the season Mm -hmm. that was further validated and increased when they made the Pascal Siakam trade because that is an all-star NBA champion with experience that, again, they didn't suddenly become an elite defensive team, but they added another weapon into the system where, like, just from a, a lineup standpoint, and it's the first time in the Siakam era, which I'm just using that as a frame of reference, I get it, era's probably too strong a word there, but <laughs> in his time here in Indiana, it's the first time I was able to see him up close and see him with Miles Turner. And that's just another, not just a body, but it, it, it's a, a menacing presence within this Pacers lineup to know that you have, in any set, two useful bigs, whether they're stretching the floor, whether they're inside the lane like you saw the first possession of the ball game last night it's like well this is usually an area where it's a first basket opportunity for miles turner get him in the pick and roll action and instead they're using off ball action to get siakam free for a straightaway three and he knocks it down like there there's versatility within this lineup more so than there was prior to his arrival in indiana to the point that i feel pretty good about putting them as a six seed so let's say that for the sake of argument on the pacers side of things we do that. We put them in the six seed confidently. There's no debate about it. Season ends today, and they are the six. So they're up against Milwaukee. Then you get into the large-scale conversation of, is what they did to Milwaukee in the play-in a retainable result over the course of a seven-game series? And with how Milwaukee played to end the All-Star break... I would say yes. I think <laughs> yeah. the Pacers, as it stands, despite the record, are a more connected group than Milwaukee is. Do I think that's going to keep that way the rest of the season? Absolutely not. Like Damian Lillard's going to start to continue to come back and find his stride. They're going to be what they are, which is a contender in the East. But that said, if you, the way you lose, I think, matters with where the perspective of this honeymoon period changes for Tyrese Halliburton nationally. Locally, I'm right there with you. This is a year of a year away, likely from being a real contender, a piece away or a player growth leap like Benedict Mather in a way from being a legit That's contender fair. next season. I think the way they play in the playoffs and or play in dictates what happens nationally. I think Milwaukee is their best matchup in terms of the playoffs because when you look at Milwaukee and where they struggle, they struggle to defend guards. They don't have a, a they don't have Drew Holiday anymore. And Damian Lillard's not a defensive prowess minded guard. He's more of an offensive guard. And if the Pacers are able to contain him like they did in the five games that they did this season, where they went four one against Milwaukee, there's a legit path to where the Pacers could win that first round against the Bucks simply because they can let Giannis do his thing. Brooke Lopez has had a down season for Milwaukee. Bobby Portis has had a down season as well. And when you look at the guards, we talk about it with the NCAA tournament a lot. A lot of the times in the NBA, it's about having a dominant forward and a dominant guard. And right now the Pacers have multiple avenues of guards that they can throw at uh, Damian Lillard, the multitude amount of guards that can score. You've got Aaron Neesmith, who has developed really, really, really well, um, not even just as a shooter, but as a driver and as a decision maker. So I think when you would look at and you start looking at like first round matchups, and I know we still have 25 games to do this, but sixth seed is probably the most ideal spot if you are Indiana, because then if you do defeat Milwaukee in the first round, you avoid playing Boston in the second round of the playoffs. And I think that's big because Boston is by far the worst matchup for the Indiana yeah. Pacers because of all the length and sides that they have. They're kind of everybody's one through worst five. matchup in like, a way, but yeah, yeah. Especially, especially the Pacers. Do you, where do you see them as, to your same question, whether it's, because at the end of the day, nationally, 
that matters to us. That matters to the fans. The players, they're obviously, as you know, as a beat writer, they're not worried about that. Right. But, but, but from your standpoint, where do things change with this team in the second half of the season, both from an expectation standpoint and what type of matchup they could draw in the postseason, which, as Eddie highlighted, still about 25 games away? Yeah, I think you obviously need to stop treading water in a sense and start to like stack some wins because since the Siakam trade, there has been sort of like this up and down nature of the team. I think they're eight and five in the 13 games with him. And so you'd like to get them or see them go on a streak and, and get a rhythm and, and build some chemistry. But I will say as far as the playoff seating and stuff like that goes, obviously we're getting ahead of ourselves, but who does it in sports radio? But the thing I'll say is there is something to be said about the pressure of the playoffs. And that's the one thing that we can't really quantify yeah. or dictate or even like judge based off what happened earlier this season. And obviously it took Giannis scoring 64 points and then stealing the game ball afterwards or having the game ball stolen from him <laughs> to get their one win against this team. It took a franchise record scoring-wise from him to get that one win against the Pacers. However, who do you trust more in the postseason? Right. The guy who scored 50 points in a you know finals game to close him out? Guy, Damian Lillard, who's hit two game winners to win playoff series? Or do you trust the, the young and upcoming Pacers? And so obviously, you're always a challenger until you actually defeat someone yep. or, or do it. But I would just say, caution everyone out there to say, two of these guys in this potential matchup are proven in the playoffs. You know, the Pacers haven't been there. I mean, the last you know, time they were there, I don't even think Tyrese Halliburton was in the NBA. You know, and so uh, it might have been. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I'm like, I actually right? don't think he was in the, in the NBA. The last time they made it was 2020. You're right. Yeah, because yeah, the bubble. Yeah, yeah I remember that. that. Yep. Yeah, because yep. that's why I can't forget it. You know, <laughs> TJ Warren, shout out to, yes. you know, all NBA bubble team, yep. TJ Warren. <laughs> so that's my biggest thing is I know everyone's like, oh, man, like we got the Bucks' number or they got the Bucks' number, but it's different in the playoffs, man. And I've seen it before, you know, with teams like the Cavaliers, the LeBron teams. Right. And where like Eddie's Pacers fans, Eddie's age and older. Remember that because oftentimes, especially the Miami <laughs> days, the Pacers got the better end of the heat in the regular season series. And you think, okay, there's a formula here. And then playoff basketball arrives. And granted, by the time the heat Pacers rivalry was where it was, the Pacers had playoff experience. Right. They were much older right. and more and wiser than this current Pacers team, just in terms of playoff mileage. And they had had previous battles with LeBron and with Miami, but that's what I keep giving pause to in my head is that's great that they dominated in the regular season, but to your end, and I think that there are pieces of this roster that are equipped for it. Miles Turner's been there before. Pascal Siakam has been there before and climbed the highest mountain. Like, yeah. there, there is experience on this team, but you have to have some level of pause no matter how confident you are in the Pacers, knowing yeah. that just because you got the regular season series, if that is the assignment you ultimately draw or the matchup you draw, that, that's, your, that's your overall point there, James, that playoff basketball, it's just different. And that's why I said this yesterday. I'm probably crazy with this, but I am hopeful in the same way, not like leaps and bounds better, but you've seen guys like Steph, guys like Damian Lillard get just a little bit better defensively in the playoffs. Maybe it's just an extra possession or two. Not saying again, I said this yesterday, they're not becoming Gary Payton, but they're, <laughs> they're they're getting just enough better to where you can't always pick on that mismatch. And if you can pick on the mismatch, the coaching is, is at such an elite level, 
they have better ways of hiding. Yeah, there's guys a lot like more that. scouting. Obviously, you have more days to prepare. You're more well rested. All these things change versus how you scout a team when you're coming off a back to back or your third game in five nights. Like this won't be the case in the playoffs if the Pacers get there. And the other thing I'll add is with Halliburton, this is his chance to sort of arrive. And I was talking to Kenny Smith about this during the All-Star break. And he was like, you know, classic line. He was like, you make your fame, you make your name in the playoffs. Yep. So he was like, as great as this guy is. And he mentioned this this word, diversification, for Halliburton. He was talking about how he's a very unique star because he's an elite passer, but he also, when he wants to be, is an elite scorer. Like, yeah. Ty can go get you 40. We've seen it. He had, and like, an all-star replica performance in the early stage of the first I was gonna quarter say, last Yeah, night. I was like, so, <laughs> so I do think that he's someone, when the lights come on at their brightest, he'll be ready. But again, we can't say for sure just how good he is. And I know Reggie Miller is like, I think this guy can be the best player on a championship team. And that all sounds great, but... You know, Jason Tatum hasn't been the best player on the championship team yet. Luka hasn't been the best player on the championship team yet. So there are certain players out there where if you want to get in that conversation, you at least have to get to the playoffs and then sort of prove yourself. Because even when Luka earlier in his career like wasn't getting out of the first round, the numbers he was putting up were yeah. like historically great. And obviously Ty plays a different style of game, you know, more of a pass-first player. But I do think this is his opportunity to, again, validate all the respect he's gained, and you see it. And, and I'll also even add this. It might not be linear. You know, there are certain things you go through in the playoffs where you usually struggle and fail or you ha- don't have success, and you got to go back to the drawing board after falling from this steep, you know, height. You know, you go all the way back to, you know, square one, and you start over in the offseason, and you figure out, okay, when I played this team in the playoffs, they shaded me this way or they guarded me this way. This is how, how I beat it. I mean, we saw Dame shooting from half court in the All-Star game with ease, but I don't know if you all remember this, but when he was in Portland, they played New Orleans that one year in the playoffs. He could not do anything with how Drew Holiday back then, part of the Pelicans, was guarding him and how they were like basically picking him up from half court. He's like, you know what? The only way I can beat this is if I get more range. And so I would like to just see what Halliburton does, how he adjusts to the playoffs, and obviously how he builds his game from there. Because every year we've seen a leap from him. Last year it was the he's a pretty good player to an all-star. This season it's all-star to possibly all-NBA. And then now it's I think the question is, can you be you know borderline top 10, top 12, and a guy that obviously makes your team a contender? So um, a lot to be said. Obviously a lot of more games to be played. They're not there yet, I think. The way I look at Halliburton is that he's ascending, but he hasn't arrived by any stretch of my imagination. But it is exciting, I think, to sort of look at where this team was when he got here a few years ago. They lost their last 10 games when they traded for Halliburton that season. Like, that was, I was there. It was rough. Yeah. And then now, you know, knock on some wood here, the only way they would lose 10 games is if all these guys, like, got hurt or something like that. So they're they're for real. And I, and I think it's fun to sort of have that, that resurgence. And, I mean... I remember when they beat Phoenix a few weeks ago and Devin Booker at 62, it was so loud in there. It felt like a playoff game. And I think that this city, this state, is kind of yearning for that again. They've won two straight now, three of their last four. And if Ooh, you go two back game from the All-Star streak, break, 
five of their last seven. Yeah, <laughs> two game winning streak. Maybe it's that's a streak. something to hang it a banner about. It is a streak, but five of their last seven. And that's going before the All Star break as well. The more important note there, and they've been solid at home, eighteen and eleven at home so far this season. On this home stand, still three games left to play. They will host Dallas on Sunday, then a back to back Monday against Toronto followed by the final game of this homestand when they host New Orleans next Wednesday. So they have an opportunity to stack a couple more home wins before they have a little bit of a three-game road trip sandwiched in there. And it's easier said than done, but the more you can stack wins, especially without Aaron Neesmith, and who knows, it might it might be, a, I don't know if we have clarity on that just yet, Eddie, but it, it could be a still day-to-day game thing with him. Right. It could be, a, hey, maybe they see him in two games. Maybe it's... On Sunday, no clarity there just yet, but whenever you get him back, you would think that adds another layer back to this team. And that's one last area on the Pacers that I want to get to, at least in this opening segment. From a distribution standpoint, in terms of impact players, yes, Tyrese has his 25, but he's not really impacted directly by the absence. In terms of where the minutes are at, from Aaron Neesmith, Benning Matherin into the starting lineup, and that's we'll start with that. Benny Matherin gets the nod to be back in the starting lineup. There are questions whether or not that would be the direction they would go, but he is ultimately the one they decide to. He has 15 points. He, wink, wink, wins the Jay Nivey War because he outscored him by a point. That's all that matters, right? You can just close that book. We're good. We'll start, I don't know. We'll start there. Benny Matherin, <laughs> Ivy joke aside, uh, he looked good last night. Yeah, and I think he's better when he is in attack mode and sort of given more of an offensive load, to be honest. Um, I think that there are still times where I wonder... A couple head-scratching plays every now and again. Yeah, and I guess my challenge to Benedict is there's there's two things. Number one, stop complaining. Like He does that a lot. And, and, and I say that because those are the possessions that get you beat in the playoffs. You, you waste two seconds yelling at the ref, they go down and hit a three, momentum swings, crowd's worn, whatever the case may be, you get beat like that. And I also think that on a tangent to that, sometimes he doesn't always go to score or to make a play. It's like, I'm going to go to make them make a call. And so there's a line there that can kind of get lost if you're always doing that to the point where even if you do get fouled, it's like, did you legitimately go up to actually do anything with it though? And so I would love to see him, you know, be more engaged and maybe just a little bit mentally tougher um, and, and, and I guess more mature in that sense. And also, when he's playmaking, which he's shown the ability to do, so I know he's capable, but when he passes the ball, sometimes I'm like, are you just passing it because you ran out of like real estate and you couldn't get your shot off? Or are you actually passing to do it because it benefits the offense? And so that that to me are the two things. But I thought that he was fine last night. Obviously, there's still room to grow. But like you said in the early part of this segment, the easiest path to them, or more, I guess more realistic path to them becoming a legitimate contender with the next few years is if he takes a leap forward and he becomes sort of that borderline, you know, high-level role player, borderline star that can help them get over the top. Still to come, again, we'll have a conversation with Isaac Trotter, top of the 1 o'clock hour. Nick Bumgarner going to join us top of the 2 o'clock hour. And then bottom of the 2 o'clock hour, Caitlin Cooper will join us, getting more in-depth with that conversation with Caitlin regarding the Pacers and their win over the Pistons last night and what they have in front of them. 
from a schedule standpoint as they try to more solidify where they are from a seeding standpoint. Still to come, in fact, coming up next, we'll talk a little bit about if we finally know what Purdue is, which is a couple games left in the regular season, and how much from James's seat seeding really matters in terms of where the Boilermakers could be on that one line. That and a look ahead to a monster weekend in college hoops still to come here on Querying Company, 93.5-1075, The Fan. Last night at West Lafayette, Purdue victorious with ease over Rutgers 96-68. to I love just weird, unique stats, but for the Boilermakers, they've now won 117 straight games, James, when they score at least 90. I just love I love weird just out of nowhere stats. Last loss for the Boilers back in 1987. But I I love a good just weird stat. It's like, oh, okay, 90 points. But back to the seriousness of this game. And I want to get your thoughts on Purdue as a whole, because we do this thing and I understand why we do it. And I understand why the Purdue fan base still expects it to happen. Not like how the season's going to end, but in terms of the reaction of things, because they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And yeah, even true. if they are that's viewed true. as the consensus number one <laughs> overall seed right now, because that's what Lenardi has in his latest bracketology. And we kind of expected that the way UConn lost and the way Purdue responded from that loss to Ohio State. They're back in the driver's seat in terms of being a top overall seed. So a couple different angles I want to talk to you about this. But first, last night, and I'm going to go on record with this, and it's not a big leap oh, to man. take. Oh, man. It's not a big leap to take. It's a very easy take and that's why I want to get your thoughts on it is it too easy here if Purdue shoots 50% from beyond the arc if they shoot 90% from the foul line <laughs> and Zach Eady goes for 25 and 7 who's beating them like I, I it, yeah. it, it's it, it, when they are on like that and it's the Big Ten I know Rutgers is not UConn but it's the Big Ten and you know you're gonna get your best from the other side Every night, and there were, again, whispers of question marks about the Boulder after the loss to Ohio State. And then here they are responding at home in their most dominant form, which is we have shooters that are better than they were a year ago. Once again, Lance Jones exists, and so does Zach Eady. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to be strong at the charity stripe. If they play like that, oh, and by the way, they only turn it over 11 times. Not a lot of teams are going to beat them. How easy is that take? And maybe the 19 of tw- or 18 of 20 part at the line isn't sustainable, but the volumes of high-quality three-point shots they take, that's not out of the question, that they, they, that they could not have a 40% or sniffing a 50% night from beyond the arc in the tournament. That's not crazy. It's not crazy. I think, obviously, uh, your stance is a safe one oh, as yeah. far as some of those numbers. But I got a I'll, nice blanket over here. I know. I'm very comfortable. Yep. <laughs> but... I'll add that what to me makes a difference is probably what they did defensively the most because you're not going to shoot like that every night come tournament time. I mean, even just in the Big Ten tournament, there's just going to be nights where you don't get your outside shots to, to drop, quite frankly, but you have to be able to lock up defensively, which they did. Um, I don't know how to say Rutgers coach's name, Steve Pinkle? Pinkle. 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 He said, we're one of the best defensive teams in the country, and today we, we didn't have any answers. They went inside. They made free throws. They they had threes. He's not wrong about that. Steve Peichel's teams are physical, aggressive. They are the epitome of saying. defense in the Big Ten. But if sure. you can be the more physical team, yeah. the more defensive team, 
the more dominant team. I mean, like you said, they have a chance to do something special. But I also wonder how much of it is psychological for the players too because you know, regardless of what happens the rest of the season, they're going to be most likely a number one seed, whether the consensus number number one overall seed is, I guess, to be determined. But they'll probably be a number one seed. I think that's a safe bet. Yes. And now it becomes, okay, we heard everything from last year for so long. It's going to become the story, no matter where you're seated or who you play, because the narrative is that you can't win when it matters the most. And I do think that outside shooting, of all the things you mentioned, I, I trust Zach Eady to put up big numbers because he's done it for a couple years now. And he's actually better than he was last year, and he was a national player of the year last year. I trust that you know they're probably going to make their free throws. But the three-point shot, especially in college basketball, is always the great like equalizer. Yes, and, and in a sense, it's like the one... It doesn't always equalize things because it makes you worse than you <laughs> sure. are, or makes sure. it makes a team that's you not fall in love with that. Exactly. Yeah. I was watching. Uh, actually, it was Nebraska and IU the other night. Yeah. You know, one of the Nebraska players, I forget his name. He shot like twenty nine percent from three all year, and he goes like five for five against them, and then they win the game handedly. So that could happen against you. IU took like twenty seven and hit like four. Exactly. <laughs> and this is why I think defensively, as long as the the Boilermakers are locked in defensively then that could be the difference in them advancing. Obviously, you have to make some shots, but you can't like let these teams kind of take advantage of you. And I think Lance Jones makes a huge difference defensively. And, you know, Braden Smith being a year smarter, stronger, more poised, you know, Fletcher Lawyer, all those guys, they matter, man. But, I, I mean, that was as, as impressive as a victory as you're going to see from a team in their own conference. You know, this team knows who you are. They've scouted you. They're not surprised by anything, but – they just looked totally dominant in that game. And, you know, obviously for Boilermaker fans, they would love for that to be a preview of the tournament, but we just don't know. That's why I love March because it's crazy. You can think one thing and with one bad shooting day, one bad turnover, whatever the case may be, even just one human game from Zach Eady where he doesn't have 25 and 10. And what if he only has 19 and 12, 19 and eight? Like, is that enough for you to do you have enough to win without you know superstar Edie I don't know so um we'll see but I think that if I am a Boilermaker fan which I'm not by the way but if I am um I feel pretty good about that win he's not an Indiana fan but, for those concerned he, no he, no he, uh, yeah, how, about, how his... about those Illini the other night <laughs> look I'm just glad that I guess I'm in the world of like sports media now where I don't actually <laughs> cheer as much as I used to because that would to me would be so painful I was thinking about like my diehard Illinois fans. Oh, it's a brutal Because, I mean, the narrative after Purdue lost was, oh, man, can Illinois catch him for the Big Ten, you know, regular season title? And then they go out there and they lose to Penn State. And, like, the last minute, and it's like, oh, that was fun while it lasted. So, getting back to Purdue, I think they're fine. But, like you said, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. But maybe it drops in a good direction this year. Or it we'll drops see. in a different round. Like, here's another safe take. And I've said this a couple times, not because I enjoy making, you know, skin crawl for Purdue fans. I, <laughs> I'm genuinely being serious about this. Mathematically speaking, I know people hate when we bring math. I was going to say, oh, use analytics. No, I'm Math- <laughs> Mathematically speaking, they're not losing in the first round this year. It, it, it's mathematically impossible. It's happened twice in, like, what, 270, whatever the stat is. I used to know it off the top of my head. It's a good I thing basketball's not a math sport, Jimmy. Yeah, I understand. But Ooh, yeah, what, get, get what, him, Eddie, get what him. What you should be more worried about <laughs> if you're a Purdue fan, or maybe not, 
Because when I look at a preview of their potential bracket, and yes, we're in that season now. We are, more math here, I know everybody's very excited, we are four weeks away, give or take, from Selection Sunday. This is now no longer a hobby of, oh, what's what's happening with Lenardi? What's Jerry Palm right? No, we're, at, we're outside of that. What's Mike DeCourcy got? That's no longer a joke because it's November. It's February 23rd. Everything has hit the fan now. It's real. And while the positioning on the bracket might not be accurate from Joe Lenardi, he's usually pretty accurate with who makes the field and about where their seed line is. And you talk about the importance of getting the top overall seed. And we had Bruce Weber on yesterday. Shout out to you. And he spoke about whether or not he cared in regards to seeding as a coach. And he said, no, like, especially a one seed is a one seed. Like, it's great, but it's more a media conversation than it is the coaches. And I get that. They're just ready to go play the games. But when you look at who Purdue could potentially face if they get the number one overall seed and they're in the Midwest Regional, Alabama already beat them. Marquette already beat them. Those are the top two and three seeds that you would potentially face if Lenardi is dead on across the board with this. So there is some sense of, and I don't know where you sit on this, James, of, oh, it's tough to beat a good team twice. I get it. Like, that's it's a rematch. There's time for adjustments. But at the same time, there is a level of familiarity there. And on neutral courts, it's not like it was in Mackey. You have significant wins against teams that very well could wind up in your region. That That's hard not to... Players aren't going to look ahead, but it's hard not from a fan perspective. If you're a Purdue fan starting to really consume all this to think, man, that, that's not a bad bracket. You're looking at Oklahoma or New Mexico in the round of 32, and then a combination of Dayton or McNeese State or Baylor or UC Irvine in the uh, Sweet 16. Like, that's that's appealing. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but but that's where you should be at if you're a Purdue fan. I'm not saying don't focus on the Big Ten tournament and focus on winning more hardware, but... This team is bigger than that. Like th- This team with how they're built <laughs> and the opportunity in front of them is bigger than just adding another Big Ten trophy to the case at West Lafayette. I agree with that, mainly because how many teams can say they have the National Player of the Year and then they come back and they get better? The short so, list. <laughs> And, and so I think that when we look back on the Zach Eady era, you want to be able to say you got something out of that, you know, even if it is just the final four, and I say just the final four, but, you know, obviously they aspire to win it all. They have a team good enough to do so, but it will be kind of weird to look back on this era of Zach Eady and the Boilermakers and say that they never really had that tournament run. And they've had, obviously they've had some crazy fortune or misfortune over the years I still think back to the Carson Edwards Virginia game and I'm like you know I thought for sure okay they're seconds away from going to the final four you know the monkeys off of Matt Painter's back and Virginia's like uh uh-uh and so that (laughs) I heard no fat lady we saw exactly and so I think that that changes things and 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 you want to be able to look back on this time and say you maximized it and that you don't wish, oh, if we would have had this happen or if we had one more shot. Like, this is it, man. And obviously, they're going to be a good program regardless. They have a lot of talent coming in every year. They've been one of the best programs in the country, especially over the last decade, as far as just stability and steadily always winning. However, to win 
at the biggest and highest level. You have the team to do it. You have the player to do it. And now it's about just getting the job done. And you have the coach to do it, I believe. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, after last season's loss, season-ending loss, that is, where they were like, oh, Matt Painter, is he the right guy for the job? Dude, it can get a lot worse than him. Oh, yeah. A lot worse than him. However, I'm sure he knows, and as a competitor, he probably feels it too. I, You know, I, I coach my butt off every day with these guys. We got to go out there and prove it. And so, yes, regular season Big Ten title, great. Potential tournament, Big Ten title, fantastic. But we all know with this team and that program, it's bigger than that. And, you know, I know for a lot of IU fans, they're like just waiting for Purdue to fail so they can get their 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 jabs in. And I don't blame you. You know, when look, I am the king of petty. So if my team is doing bad and your team loses in the first round, I don't care. We both together. But we both th- at home. And, but there are layers to that conversation. Like, for example, there will be criticism, rightfully so, if Purdue misses out on a Final Four run. But you can criticize a team while still acknowledging and maybe removing blame necessarily from Matt Painter if that happens. Yeah, because, but it's hard. No, it is. It's hard. It, it's hard in today's society, but internally with Purdue, if you talk to people around the program, they know what Matt Painter means to Purdue. He's the living embodiment of Purdue the same way Gene Cady was. And they're a standard in the Big Ten. Like it or not, they even are. if you want to shrink it down the last three or four years, not just the entire history of Purdue basketball, and I know they don't have the banners to show it or the Final Four appearances I was to show for it. That. <laughs> no, I, I but but at the same time, they are the pinnacle of what it means to secede in that conference. Yeah. Do well in the Big Ten. I would say in the last and to be yeah. a to be a a perennial right there in the conversation. So you can like, and that will happen if they fall short. It'll happen on the show. There will be criticism against why they weren't able to do it if that happens. I argue the fact that you never know what the crapshoot of the NCAA tournament is going to give you. Sometimes you just get a bad matchup, and we've seen arguably better teams in Purdue have tough matchups and fall short. But currently, that's not a worry. That is a couple exits down the road. They still have everything in front of them for this season, and regardless of how it ends, whether it's a Final Four, whether it's a national championship, whether it's an early exit... I don't think I think there is a way to have a nuanced conversation about it while acknowledging a shortcoming without fully saying, hey, Matt Painter is not the guy. So I do want to come back to this, but I, I'll say this real quick. Just your quick thoughts. What do you think is more likely that they lose in the first two rounds or they get to, let's say, an Elite Eight? More likely they get to an Elite Eight. I mean, you obviously have to see the draw, but I, yeah. I don't think this is a team that misses out on the second weekend. I think they get there. I agree. I, th- I, think, any, like, I think missing out on the second weekend would be, now you're talking about a really tough, li- tough failure where questions have to be asked. Yeah, that's fair. We can dive deeper into that model, and that's an interesting conversation because a lot of people, depending on your prism, don't view the tournament in a bottle like that. A lot of people say body of work. That's kind of where I lean, which is why you, know, you give the credit and you tip the cap for what a great coach Matt Painter is. We'll dive more to that with Isaac Trotter, though, National College Basketball writer, at the top of the hour. Maybe a little bit more college hoops, including a big matchup for Butler this weekend, and an early look at Combine next week with James Boyd and Jimmy Cook. Query and company on the fan. We'll expand on this a little bit more with Isaac Trotter, National College Basketball writer, joining us top of the hour, 10 minutes from now, in fact. But for the Butler Bulldogs, the tournament resume, which I thought was... Pretty solid in terms of getting in the field 
just three or four weeks ago, now suddenly in jeopardy. Again, he is not the be-all, end-all when it comes to the selection committee, but Joe Lenardi currently has Butler. They were as high as the top line of the last four in earlier this week. They're now the bottom of the first four out behind Utah, Ole Miss, and Wake Forest. Seton Hall currently occupies that spot where Butler was. And, oh, look at that. Butler, Seton Hall this Saturday at Seton Hall on the road, a quad one opportunity for Butler. So we'll talk more about that game itself and what it would mean for the Bulldogs to end what has been a six-year drought since their last March Madness appearance. They, like many, had a pretty good team when the tournament was upended by COVID and was canceled. And Obviously, nobody got NCAA tournament bids there, but tis his life. That's where things are at for them. It's been a six-year drought, and through a couple of head coaches now with Dad Mata, in year two, ahead of expectations, an opportunity for Butler to seize that and you know, win over Seton Hall. I'm not saying it necessarily locks it down for the Bulldogs, but you look at who they have left, St. John's, DePaul, Xavier, they'd be in pretty good driving position if they're able to beat the Pirates. Yeah, we had Nick Gardner on earlier in the week, and he pretty much said that if Butler, and John Fanta said the same thing, yeah. essentially, if Butler loses against Seton Hall, there's nothing left on their schedule for them to... Yeah provide clarity as to to the committee as to them being a tournament team. The so o- the only thing they have that, to win. Right. The only thing that is left is the Big East tournament. And again, that's just not been a place where they have thrived in the decade that they have been there. You get to 20 wins. That's another part John Fanta had mentioned was you get to 20 only, I think he said only one Big East team ever has missed out on the tournament with 20 wins. And that would be what Butler is at if they close out in a four-game so winning streak. Oh so we'll see what happens with the Bulldogs. Quick look here, and we only have about two minutes before we got to go to break. So, James, I'll leave the ball fully in your court. Your early thoughts on the combine itself, you can take that any direction. It being here in Indianapolis and them getting that contract extension yet again <laughs> yeah. from the NFL, the value of the Colts, the Brock Bowers rumors, anywhere you want to go with that in terms of what you're focused on for the combine, and we'll expand on that as the day goes on. I'll definitely be keeping an eye on Brock Bowers just because. I've seen him mocked enough by legitimate people to now, at first I was like, there's no chance he falls to 15. Now I'm like, hmm, is there a chance? How realistic is it? I'll have more on that actually uh, later on, or early next week. But I think that he's the most intriguing prospect for them, mainly because they don't actually need, I wouldn't say like the tight ends like their biggest need, but you look at his talent, I just wonder if they go best player available if he's there. So um, we'll see. But there's other things to look at as well. I'm curious to see, like, what, you know, wide receivers might catch the eye of Reggie Wayne. I'll be talking to a couple of different wide receivers, like, who who have you spoke to with the Colts? Is it Reggie? What do he say? Because as we know from last year, he vouched a lot for Josh Downs, and he ended up being the guy that they chose and ended up having a really good rookie season. So um, we'll see. But I guess what's weird for me is I don't really have much direction this year which I guess is a good thing because I can float around to like edge rushers, to wide receivers, to defensive backs because they have the quarterback and they have the coach. And so last year it was so simple in a sense of, okay, quarterback talks this day at this time. You're going to do all these different things about quarterback, 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 quarterback. And now it's how do you build the right pieces around that guy? And so I'm excited to talk to Chris Ballard and Shane Steichen I believe on Wednesday of this upcoming week. And so that should be a good time to get the ball rolling for combine weekend. 
you know, pivot from All-Star Weekend to now being, you know, another week of sleepless nights as far as the combine goes. But I'm excited for it and obviously great for the opportunity. Subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't already. Follow James' work there. You can get it on Twitter as well, at RomeoVilleKid. We're going to step aside. We come back. Isaac Trotter covers college basketball for 24-7 sports. We'll get his perspective on Purdue and their quest for the top overall seed, as well as where teams like Butler and Indiana State stand in their quest to make it to the big dance. Isaac Trotter, 24-7 sports, joins us next on Querying Company. Still here, vibing out in the DriveHubula.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Listen to Query and company and this is uh that was quite the intro there eddie i like that for those who cannot listen to the music you know on the podcast things like that it was usher yeah eddie spins on a friday you know i know this. i was like man i feel like i'm in a club you know what's <laughs> going on so obviously we have had a lot of fun talking about purdue iu um maybe not as much fun with iu because of what's going on there butler indiana state a lot of things going on as far as the tournament goes or tournament seating and potential seating goes and we have my buddy Isaac Trotter on the line from 24-7 Sports. I know Isaac from college and I guess we're adults now with jobs. So Isaac, how you doing? <laughs> doing well, man. Good to, good to talk with you again. So obviously, Isaac, I know you've been keeping up with a lot of things Big Ten. I won't start with our Illini, which you know bothered me the other night, but I will start with Purdue. Where do you think this team has grown the most from last season to this season, which could possibly make things different, obviously, come tournament time. Yeah, I think it's twofold. You know, I think a lot of people entered this year going, hey, this is the same team with a lot of the same faces, and they're going to have the same issues. I think Purdue has gotten a lot better in their lead guard play. Braden Smith has really elevated from, you know, I think a lot of people had questions about him is if he's going to be a Big Ten starter. Well, he answered this last year. Like, he's a good Big Ten starter. This year, he's elevated into a completely different tier. He's arguably one of the best five point guards in all of college basketball. And that mid-range pull-up jumper that he's able to get to just is so nasty. Like, that was a weakness last year. He spent all summer long, all offseason, trying to hone that with his dad, doing a lot of workouts with him. And it's become a huge, huge strength. And I think that has really changed the complexion of this team because you know you can get so many free throws and so many shots at the rim with Zach Eady. And you know you're going to get really good open looks from three. But being able to differentiate your shot diet and having those mid-range pull-ups has really changed how you have to guard Purdue, how you have to guard their ball screens. And it's really been a big game changer. And then secondly is Lance Jones. Just that added one more ball handler who is electric in transition, can really get out and run and knock down those catch-and-shoot threes before defenses can get set. That's nasty. And like when you can dominate in half court and then you have a little bit of transition offense to go with it with Lance Jones, that's a really, really good combination for a Purdue team that I think has everything it takes to win the national title. Follow-up to that, Zach Eady, the narrative around here for people who may not like him or for the Boilermakers, oh, he's just big. What makes him special besides his size? Because we have seen even a jump from last year to this year, even after winning the National Player of the Year last year. Yeah, I think he's probably the best conditioned athlete in all of college basketball. And that's saying something, right? Like he, you're seven foot four, you're 300 pounds. And his ability to run the floor like he does 
every single time. Take the beating he does. You know, attack the offensive glass. Get back and, and also, you know, rip down defensive rebounds. Like, he's playing 36 minutes a night, 20, like 42 minutes a night in, in overtime against Northwestern, like 35 against Indiana. Like, every single night to do that. Like, we, we don't see that throughout college basketball. Guys that big usually don't play this many minutes and play as hard as he does. So I think he has really elevated from a conditioning standpoint. His lateral movement is better. His rim protection has been better. You know, some honestly, offensively lately, I haven't loved everything he's done. He was a lot better against Rutgers, but before that he had struggled a little bit with some turnovers, some, you know, some weird shots that you'd expect him to make that he was missing in, in the paint, but defensively and everything else wise, he's checked off a ton of boxes. And I think that's why you're seeing him in that first round mock drafts. You know, where where legitimate NBA guys are really tied in are saying like this guy is potentially, you know, a first round pick, potentially even maybe a top 20 pick. And I think it's all warranted from all of the work that he's done to change his body and really change his game to become an even more modern big man, despite, you know, not being like the, hey, I'm a, I'm a big who's going to go out and shoot 40 percent from three on, on a lot of high volume. National College basketball writer for 24-7 sports, Isaac Trotter, is our guest. Sticking with Purdue, Isaac, there has been a habit because of how good they've been, and it's a good problem to have because they only have three losses on the season, but there's been a habit of trying to find ways to beat Purdue and kind of classic, as happens in today's media cycle, overreactions after the losses. There also could be, though, overreactions after the wins because, as James and I talked about to start the show, like, yes, Steve Peichel was a great coach. Rutgers is always a physical team. They are the epitome of Big Ten basketball especially on the defensive end, and Purdue had their way with them from start to finish last night. They go 90% from the foul line and 52% from three. If they play like that, no one's beating them. Like if they, Zach Eady goes for 25 and they're as effective as they were from beyond the arc and don't have hiccups taking care of the basketball or at the foul line, nobody's beating them, and that's the reaction from a win over Rutgers. When you look at the ebbs and flows, because you cover this on a daily basis, where is the appropriate reaction for Purdue as they stand with four games to play, three of which are in quad one territory because of where the Big Ten has allotted itself this year? You know, I think Purdue has really had a hard time figuring out its rotation at times. Yes, they're 24 and three. Yes, they've won all these games. Yes, it's played well. But lately, I think they're kind of trying to tinker and find what their best five-man lineup is. And from from one game perspective against Rutgers, I think they found it a little bit with Camden Heidi really asserting himself. I love that dude. Like, I think he is like a redshirt freshman who has just gotten better and better. And, yes, it's great when you make shots and then threes go in, like, you, you look better. But just the bounce that he has, the athleticism that he gives them, you know, we talk a little bit more about that transition offense. I think he gives them a, a spark there. Like, you have to guard him, too. And I, I like his defense, too. I think he's had moments where he has really moved his feet well. So from a big-picture standpoint, I think Purdue is starting to find that lineup that they really like. Because if Cam Heidi becomes this piece – that, hey, when Fletcher Lawyer is struggling or, hey, those big wings are giving Fletcher Lawyer some trouble, if you can go to Cam Heidi and you don't necessarily have to go to Ethan Morton, I just feel like the offense moves a little bit better. It flows a little bit easier. And it's just another piece, that, that another arrow, so to speak, that, that uh, Matt Painter and his, and his coaching staff can really go to in, in that arsenal and just have something different, have those counters so that they can win games in different ways. Because, you know, I, I think we all know, like, you have to win six different games in six different ways to win it all in March. And I think Purdue is starting to find that rhythm a little bit more and find ways to win when it's not just the Zach Eady show and when it's not just the Braden Smith show and when it's not just the, the Lance Jones show. They can do a lot of different things now. 
it feels like we've reached a point in the season where, yes, there's clear separation for Houston and UConn and Purdue, but you never know what the tournament itself is going to draw. You throw Kansas in there as well. There's also times, though, where it looks like a parody-filled season of college basketball where maybe anything can happen and this could be the wide-open type of March Madness that fans, those that cover the sport, love. For those that are on top of the landscape for this season, this season in a vacuum, how much more value, if at all, is there on securing the consensus number one overall seed in the tournament if you're UConn or locally based if you're Purdue? I think it's a big advantage this year, especially, you know, because I I genuinely think that, you know, between number four nationally and maybe number 30 nationally, I don't think that gap is very big. Like the fourth best team in college basketball, maybe that's Arizona. Like they're, they're a really good team who I think is in that top tier, but they're not, you know, this world beater that can't can ever be touched by anybody. They, they lost at home last night to, to Washington State. So I think if you're Purdue and you put yourself in position to win that number one overall seed, which I think they are pretty well positioned to do, right? Like coming down the stretch, if they beat Michigan State, Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, even if they win two out of those three games, you're talking about, you know, a quad one record that's just absurd. You go into the Big Ten tournament, go on a run there, you're probably going to lock up that number one seed. They have a better resume than UConn. You can debate whether – you know, UConn might be the better team or, or whether whether Purdue's the better team. But I think Purdue clearly has the better resume with those remaining games to potentially seal that that uh, number one overall seed. And if they do get that, I really do think it is a big advantage just because the gap between, you know, that three and 30, like I was talking about, isn't all that wide. And you have to give yourself the best chance every single night. And there's some scary eight seeds and there's some scary nine seeds out there. But I'm telling you what, everybody is more scared of Purdue than they should be of anybody else. I guarantee that those conversations are happening in those coaches offices nobody wants to be in that eight or nine bracket with Purdue on the other side of it especially if you don't have a center that can that can really like be up to task with the physical assault that Edie and and even Trey Kaufman Wren can really bring on you to pivot from Purdue to IU for just a second here obviously IU has not had the season they wanted to have we knew they would take a step back after losing two NBA players however what do you think is the reason why they've maybe regressed to this degree, Isaac, where it's almost been sort of unrecognizable what this program has put out there, put on display, even the other night losing in Nebraska at home? Yeah, I think it goes back to just the portal and the game plan in it. I, I didn't love the way that this roster was constructed, uh, but also Indiana really wanted Dalton Connect, and that was the guy that they looked at in the portal and were like, this is you know, the piece that could really change our team. And they just couldn't get it. Tennessee was the the school that really put the most effort in there. And Indiana couldn't really get back in the mix with Tennessee. And, and he ends up going there and has a great year. And a part of me wonders, like, how different would we feel about Mike Woodson and this whole really this whole program if they get connect on, involved? Like, because he's maybe a top 15 pick, probably the best transfer in all of college basketball this year. So I think they knew what they needed which was that, you know, that versatile three who could really handle it, potentially go get his own bucket at times and, and be that, that shot maker that clears room for Malik Renew and Khalil Ware to really assert themselves. And when they weren't able to get it, you know, Mackenzie McBacco was a solid pivot point to it, but this group just has a lot of power forwards on the floor and they don't have enough skill and they don't have enough playmaking off the bounce. And, you know, I think they definitely thought that they were going to get a different version of Xavier Johnson than, that, than what's happened. And Trey Galloway's had moments this year where he's been fine, but, you know, Indiana's multiple guards away. And college basketball is a guards game more than ever. Indiana's bigs are talented, but their guard play 
you know, it might not be the worst in the Big Ten, but it's near the bottom of the league, and that that's just shouldn't happen. It just can't happen at a program like Indiana with the resources that they have. Well, there's my issue looking towards next year. And from your national seat, Isaac Trotter joins us, National College Basketball Rider for 24-7 Sports. Uh, Ja'Kai Newton ends up getting hurt before the season starts. They don't see any of him. Mike Woodson is set on record, which I... I have a hard time with it, and it's, a, it's just a tough look for the program. But he said on record earlier this week that he didn't anticipate Jalen Hochfino leaving after one year. He thought he was going to be a two-year guy, but you highlighted it. They tried to address it in the portal. You look at next year, Ja'Kai Newton, you're hoping, I guess, for a leap forward from Gabe Cups, and maybe he will be. I think he projects as a nice player in the Big Ten, but he's got to put on more muscle, and he needs to continue to grow. But that's a lot to ask out of even a sophomore, and they don't have a signature guard on the recruiting trail next year. So once again, it comes down to the portal. Let's say for the sake of argument, Isaac, Mbako stays, Renew stays, where goes the NBA? If they don't have a guard, but they're adding Liam McNeely, what what changes for this group? Because that's where I have a problem. I can stomach a bad season, but I worry if you still don't have the guard play, you're going to be in the same boat as you are right now. No, no question. You're right on the money. And the thing is, is I think that the presence of Xavier Johnson and Trey Galloway certainly impacted potential transfers who are looking at Indiana going, hey, like, that's great. I want to come there. But like, am I going to get to play? So Xavier Johnson leaves. You know, I don't think anybody's going to look. I mean, people will want to play with Trey Galloway. He's a he's a winning player, I think, who legitimately has we've seen him play on really good teams, a lot of talent and find ways to make other guys better. But I don't think anybody's going to look at this rest of Indiana's backcourt and be super scared that they're going to lose minutes. So I expect Indiana to go in the portal, and I think that they're going to be big game hunting for some of the best lead guards in the sport, and you got to do that. And if you could have insert a big-time lead guard – I mean, there were a lot of great lead guards in this last cycle. I think a lot of coaches that I've talked to are expecting – you know, I asked, hey, is this guy entering the portal? Hey, is this person entering the portal? The answer I usually get is, yes, everyone's entering the portal. So, like, if you go into the if you go into this next portal cycle and get one of those top guards, and you have McNeely, and you have, you know, McBacco, maybe you slide him to the four, and then you have Renew at the five. I think you could see Indiana start to get back to, you know, shooting more threes and playing a little bit, you know, more new age basketball instead of the, you know, the, the constant eighteen foot two point jumpers that it feels like Indiana's shot diet is just filled with this year. Isaac, we got Butler at Seton Hall, I believe Saturday night. I see in your latest piece you said this isn't a playing game, but it feels like it. You know, both teams are desperate. You know, only so much time to sort of sort of shore this thing up or make a run if you're Thad Mata and company. What is the key to possibly doing so when their defense has obviously let them down in some big moments this season? Yeah, the, the rim defense this year just hasn't been good enough, and I think that they're going to be really challenged. This Seton Hall team, you know, we talk about like football teams that like to drive the foot or like to, to run the ball. This is a Seton Hall team that wants to drive the <laughs> basketball. They will get downhill and they will get to the rim at will. And Kadari Richmond's been one of the best players in the sport. I think he's a pro too, six foot six, two hundred five pound wing. So Butler's guards and their wings are going to be really challenged by this Seton Hall group. And that's a tough team. Shaheen Holloway does a really good job with that Seton Hall team of just establishing toughness and, and they play with an edge. So Butler has to be the aggressor aggressor in, in that matchup. And Butler struggled at times on the road lately too. But it, it, it is one of those situations where we can't lose sight of the big picture, I think, with Butler. Like overall, this has been a pretty positive year for them. The fact that they're in the mix after everything that they've been through. You know, we've seen a lot of teams have to go into the portal and completely revamp their rosters. And so the fact that they're competitive 
is a pretty great sign. When I, you know, I looked up the stats. If if you brought in seven or more transfers this year, you know, all eight of those teams from the high major ranks aren't NCAA tournament teams this year. And Butler brought in six, so they didn't quite qualify, but they're right in the mix for it. So I think overall, Mata's done a really good job with this group. But you've got to find a way to win this game. And if you do, you're probably beating St. John's. You're probably beating DePaul. You probably can beat Xavier. And you start feeling good about yourself heading into Big East play and give yourself a chance to, to get in that large bid. Yeah, it feels like this is legitimately, as James outlined there, the, the, the play-in game before the play-in game because you're able to really solidify your resume and get yourself running downhill with, as you mentioned, St. John's, DePaul, and Xavier to play. Let's, let's play out the doomsday scenario, though, for Butler. And I say that only because of... <laughs> The missed opportunity. I'm with you with what that mod has done in year two. They're way ahead of expectations. I know the fan base is hungry to get back there. It's been six years since they've been a part of March Madness, but once, if it goes south for them to close, once that dust settles, you have to be pretty happy with the season they've had. That said, it's all still in front of them, but Doomsday, they lose to Seton Hall. They close, win over St. John's, a quad two win, not majorly significant, win over DePaul. We had John Fanta on the other day, and he basically said he'd be better off paying DePaul not to play that game in terms of what it actually does for Butler from a resume standpoint. Because <laughs> you lose it, it's a death sentence, and you win it, and okay, good, you took care of business against one of the worst teams in college basketball. And then Xavier at home, say they go 3-1, and one, but they lose Seton Hall. I know you're not a bracketologist necessarily, but you follow this enough, Isaac. Realistically, how much noise would they have to make in the Big East tournament to get back in the conversation of making the dance? Or because they've lost to Seton Hall, who is a fellow bubble team, they already have a tough uphill climb to begin with. Yeah, I think it really would come down to who their draw is in the in the Big East tournament. Like, if, if I'm Butler in that scenario, I'm begging for a chance to play UConn, Marquette, or Creighton, right? Like, you, you really want to play one of those teams, and if you could beat one of those teams and get a chance to play another one, that would be awesome as well. Just neutral site against, you know, high-level quad one wins, that would be the path to it. And then you kind of look around the bubble, like there's plenty of opportunities for both Butler and Seton Hall to sneak into this field too. So I don't think it necessarily is one or the other because certain other teams could, could fall off the page. And if you look at Butler's overall resume, they really have done a good job of not having those terrible losses. They just kind of need to rack up those wins. I think they're 4-10 and 10 in quad one games so far this year. So if you head in the Big East tournament, you're just begging for a chance to play one of those three elite teams at the top and hoping – for a shot to potentially get one or maybe even two to feel better about yourself on Selection Sunday. And if, if the fact that Butler's even thinking about a Selection Sunday berth is a huge win this year. And I know the program wants to get in and everything, but the fact that they're thinking about it, I really do think says a lot about where this program is headed and what they can do next year. Because their, their sell in the portal heading into next year is so much better than what it was last year. And I, that's, a, that's a really huge key. So for those listening, they may not know this, but Isaac was a bruiser when we played basketball back in college. Um, my chest was never hurt by him because I got out of the way. And so in that same vein, Isaac, jokes aside, who do you think is sort of like that tough bully team that could go on a run and, and have a chance to make some noise come March because of their style of playing their physicality and maybe it's just because they just want it more than the other guy? Well, I mean, that's a great point. You know, there's a couple of teams out there that I, I look at. The the normal one is Houston, right? Like, they are legitimate hyenas. They play like they want to rip your head off and they want to kill you with offensive rebounds. And they will laugh at you on the way off the floor because they just punked you for 40 minutes. Like, they are so physical. The other team, though, that plays a lot like it with a little bit more skill is Florida, one of the best offensive rebounding teams in college basketball. I think, you know, they, they offensive rebound like 40% of their chances. It's just absurd. 
Pittsburgh, what they're able to do, and they have some really great guard play that's deep. So that's a group that, I, you know, if they if they get into the tournament as a 7-8-9 seed, I'm going to be looking hard and long at them at putting them in the second weekend because that's they continue to be one of those teams that I just really genuinely like. Maybe I'm off on my own island, but the, just everything I see with them is great guard play, these forwards that just chase every offensive rebound down. You just feel them every time they play. Like They'll, they'll leave cuts and bruises all over the floor. Like That's a really good group, so I'm going to have a hard time keeping Florida out of that second weekend in my bracket, and I have a feeling it's going to probably be more mainstream. That take will be mainstream in a couple weeks. See, that's what I like to hear right there. I'm telling you, <laughs> this dude used to play so hard. I remember thinking like, oh, no, nah, my insurance is not that good. You ain't about to hurt me. And so I was very <laughs> diplomatic in my approach to loose balls and things like that with either Charlie on the floor. Like, you, that was a real you, thing. You got a high basketball IQ, James. I don't think, oh, I don't think any of us I got ever, common sense. Ever, uh, common sense, for sure. <laughs> Isaac Trotter joins us, national college basketball writer for 24-7 Sports. Isaac, kind of a two-part question in regards to conferences. The, the Big East from... The advanced metric standpoints, the net, quad one wins, all that good stuff, they have been viewed by many in that vein as one of the best conferences in college basketball. But there's a ton of top-level action from Power 5 schools. Where in your mind, A, is the best conference as it stands for the 23-24 campaign with only a couple games left to play? And secondly, where is the, this can be mid-major, this can be top-level Where's the best conference tournament we need to circle? Because I'll watch them all. But from your perspective, where's the best conference tournament in the coming weeks we should have our eyes on that maybe we don't have already? Yeah, I think the Big 12 is probably college basketball's best conference. I think the SEC, for me, would probably be second. I think that league, everyone thinks of them as a football league. But the the commitment to basketball from the NIL perspective has been a real thing, and it's not just Kentucky. We've seen teams like South Carolina, Auburn. Uh, those two teams are kind of in the middle of the pack at the beginning of the year. They've really, really improved. So I, I think that that SEC is a lot better from a basketball perspective. But, I mean, like you said, championship week coming up, that's the, one of the most fun times of the year when you can just watch all these tournaments. You, if you're not watching Mountain West basketball, you are missing out on just a delightful conference. Like all of these leagues are are really good, but the Mountain West has just some special home court advantages. They have guards who have played there for a while. You know, like Jalen House at New Mexico. He's kind of a spaz on the floor, and he knows like the weaknesses and strengths of almost every player he goes against. Like because he's played against them forever, and so he's like he's screaming like I'm in his head, I'm in his head all the time about like you know Jared Lucas from Nevada who they've hooped against each other for. For multiple years in a row and this is a league that's been super competitive they have seven teams within one game of the conference title like they could have six teams in, in the ncaa tournament so that at large case for all of those teams would be strengthened if you don't have to worry about it you could, you could win that league so you could you could go into the conference tournament there in the mountain west with seven eight teams that could potentially win it all and that's that's pretty surprising. Like, so I expect I expect major, major fireworks in that league, and it's been it's been awesome all year long throughout the regular season. And I expect that conference tournament to just be sick. So, last one for me, brother. I'm curious to know, Isaac, what is the setup when it comes to tournament time, March Madness? Because for so long, we were just sneaking and watching games in class. Those times have kind of shifted, you know, a few years from Rue from that at this point. But what is the setup for a person who is a national college basketball writer for 24-7 sports? And you have to literally keep up with everything that happens. Do you have four screens? Do you have three screens? Do you have multi phone? Maybe. Yeah, multi-view. Like, what is the setup, the hookup? All right, so I need YouTube TV to pay me. 
because I, I like that YouTube TV four screen setup big time. That's yeah. huge. And then I have like that broadcast open up on my laptop with like six or seven there. And then like my notes app open to write notes while I'm watching, you know, it's, there's a method to the madness. It's pure hell, to be honest, though. It's just so many <laughs> games and so many teams and so many names. I'm constantly logging into Synergy at like 10 o'clock at night or 7 a.m. in the morning to rewatch games that I can't, couldn't catch. But yeah, I'm excited for uh, I'm excited for March Madness, just like everybody else. And that four screen view on on YouTube TV is pretty clutch. And I could use a sponsorship, to be honest, while I'm, while we're here. I'll have my people talk to their people, and uh, we'll get that we'll get that situated for you, nice and uh, nice and quick, Isaac. But um, jokes aside, my man, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon and have fun with March Madness. I'll be more of a fan. You'll be working, but I got, I got to imagine you're pretty happy about that. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Isaac. Again, that was Isaac Trotter, reporter for 24-7 Sports, covers college basketball on a national level. And I find that stuff fascinating because I think of my job as a reporter, what my setup is during a game. And, you know, when I cover the Colts, I'm only focused on that one game. I can't imagine, like, having to be – an expert pretty much on every top team in the country. Yeah. You know, I, I consider myself to be sort of an expert on the AFC South, but even then, sure. it's it's a lot. But I think he made some good points about where Purdue is, you know, teams being more afraid of them than them being afraid of other teams and maybe the letdown that could happen. But, man, I just feel like we're right there. And as soon as that calendar flips to March, it's put up or shut up, which is my favorite time of the year because we can talk like we're doing today about all these things that could happen, and then we got finally get to see, okay, who is actually going to respond. And he's not wrong about the YouTube TV thing, though. Multiview is clutch, <laughs> is and he's also not wrong about, like, I myself, I think I speak for all YouTube TV subscribers. Hey, I, I wouldn't mind a little, little, little sponsorship deal there for the Multiview because it's critical. <laughs> it is critical for March Madness and big-time sporting events. We're going to step aside, and we come back. We'll shift towards the Colts. This is one of those... Great moments. It's always great to have James Boyd in studio, but it's especially great when some news breaks. We have salary cap numbers that broke at the top of the hour, but not only that, we now know how it impacts franchise tag conversation. We'll dive into that when we come back here on Query and Company on 93.5107.5 The Fan. Eddie Garrison rolling on a Friday. A little stronger for the podcast audience. Don't get to hear the music. With James Boyd, I'm Jimmy Cook. This is Query and Company. If you're not, the namesake himself, Jake Query, will be back on Monday. Just enjoying a quick little trip to Las Vegas. See some U2. Hope he and Shannon enjoy that show. Back here locally, though, numbers released at the top of this past hour. So right around 30 minutes ago of where the NFL's salary cap will be. My goodness. Just printing money. Record-setting cap number. $255.4 million is the salary cap. And now we have... Officially, regardless of, oh, there it is. Yes. We're in Vegas. That is Jake, good. And we're in Vegas for the cap. <laughs> I give a tip of the cap. No pun intended. Sorry about that. Uh, Teddy Garrison there for the sound effects. But we also now have, regardless of how much it's actually tied to it or not, we have official numbers now, James, on where the franchise tag will be by position, and that impacts the Colts in a big way. Yes. It is now set at $21.8 million for wide receiver. And I don't know if you heard this, but Michael Pittman Jr. is a wide receiver. What? And a pretty good one. And I wrote about this, actually, in a piece I just put out for the athletic 10-part plan for the offseason. Now, I will say this. For those of you who have read it, I am not a GM. If they don't do any of the steps, totally fine with me. I was just thinking to myself, hey, fun exercise. Gets me thinking about the season. But obviously, step number one is to find a way to get a long-term deal done with your top wideout. 
And within that first step, the first thing to do, in my opinion, would be to franchise tag him because I think it would be a bad negotiation tactic on both sides if either just agrees to the first thing thrown out. If you're Michael Pittman Jr., you're like, give me $110 million for four years, $100 million for four years, and I'm good. If you're the Colts, you're like, eh, I don't know if you're worth that much. You're really good, though, so we'll franchise tag you and offer you something less than that. But the bottom line is, if they are to franchise tag him, which they will do, I believe, unless they come to a long-term agreement before then, I believe the window was something like, uh, I think they have like two weeks basically to kind of get, um, you know, before they could tag him and he becomes a free agent. So the, the tag window is open. It's going to stay open. And if they do tag him, they'll have until like, I believe J- July 5th or something like yeah. that to get a long-term deal done with Pittman. But the number for the franchise tag is 21.8. And the reason why it's more significant than just the one year is that to me, that's probably the starting point for, if you're the Colts, what long-term salary you want to kind of be around. You know, you tell them, hey, well, the tag is this. We'll give you the tag times four or five, probably four, to keep you here. You get a huge payday. You hit free agency again. By the time you're 30, you still got some, you know, game left, a la Mike Evans. And so we'll see. But I think it's just a testament as far as the overall cap number going up to the health of the NFL. I know that the pandemic messed up a lot of projections and numbers and revenue for a lot of different leagues, but it seems like that is now firmly in the rear view after seeing, you know, obviously a record setting number come out. And as Pittman told us uh, right before he, you know, went on vacation, I assume, or or right at the end of the season, he was like, you know, anybody would be happy with $22 million a year. And so, uh, you know, I don't think he's like upset if he were to get tagged. However, um, it's certainly at least a concrete starting point. And I would like to know your thoughts, Jimmy, on would you tag him? Now, I know the tag thing gets everyone kind of freaked out, like, oh, my gosh, they don't want to pay him. But it is a tool, as Chris Ballard said, to kind of negotiate further. So if you're, you know, GM Jimmy Cook, what are your thoughts on possibly using that $21.8 million to then build on it? There were only two reasons I would not place the tag on Michael, or there's only two reasons that the tag gets implicated with Michael Pittman Jr. Number one, if you feel like there's a negotiation going on between yourself, Pittman Jr. and his representation to the point that you feel comfortable about re-signing him, and maybe at that instance, you're using the tag somewhere else. I doubt this would happen, and it would be probably more expensive than maybe what they could get him for in negotiation, but the defensive tackle tag is $22 million, right around there. Be nice to bring Grover Stewart back, especially if it was only for one year. Yeah, it, it would be nice to have a proven commodity suspension aside. Even though he's going to be thirty, you're not locked into a long term commitment with him. It's a one year effective cycle if you use the tag on him. Now that said, the Colts, historically speaking, don't use the tag very often. So this might just be a one and done exclusive conversation of Michael Pittman Jr. And if they don't need to use the tag, they won't use it. The other reason, though, of why I would use it and why I likely would have tagged him when the window opened, is you can't lose him. Under no circumstances right. can you point. lose him to free agency, and all I view the tag is, is as a assertion that you are not letting him walk. Right. Just because you tag him doesn't mean you can't then have a 
extension conversation, as you mentioned, between now and July. But heck, you could do it a week from now. Yeah, it doesn't I was gonna have say, to be in July. You could do it whenever. Yeah, for my mental health, get it done before then. <laughs> right. Because I don't want to be asking every day at training camp in Westfield, hey, did you get that deal done with your top player? Kind of like it was last year. Obviously, it's a little, lot different with the positions and stuff. But for my sake and selfishly, you know, right. let's just have that resolved before or, or, I see them again. Or more so after like rookie minicamp where <laughs> there's that little lull where maybe James Boyd's able to take a little bit of a vacation then all of a sudden notification comes through that the extension from my, I, I know you'll take the work where it comes but yeah. still I mean make life a little bit easier yeah, I'm, on the not, beat I'm not upset with that at all you know <laughs> hey I'll, I'll be in contact with certain people around the building if you want to let me know what's going on feel free but to your point Jimmy I, I think that the reason they probably didn't tag him right away is I because yeah. I mean I'm looking at Eddie right now you, we were in school at one point you never do anything before you have to correct so, <laughs> I would say deadlines. It's a last resort. Exactly. Right. So, they probably didn't tag him right away because... It's your get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. You know it's there, but you don't want to use it unless you really need exactly. to. I get it. And exactly. I told Jimmy the other day, we were talking about this after the show, and I was like, if they use the tag like immediately or as soon as like the window opens and it's not before like the last day or the last day or two, that to me, that's an, that's an alarm bell that these two sides are so far off right. that the Colts don't expect that they're going to be able to negotiate a contract before that deadline right. of the franchise tag and right. not the other way around. And even if that isn't the case, the optics of it is exactly what you're sure. talking about. Like The optics don't look great if you tag them immediately out of the gate. With what's happened with this franchise, though, whether oh, they tag them out of the gate or at the <laughs> 11th hour, alarm bells are still going to go no, off this because is true. how far apart are they? What's going on? No, nah, that's true. And look... I'll be real about this. If I'm Pittman, I want, whenever my contract comes through, assuming that he gets a long-term deal done here in Indianapolis, I want people to say, oh, that's too much money for him. Because then you know you got a good deal. That's just the reality of it. I I think that we're going to view, maybe not us here in Indianapolis, but I do think that the national narrative will kind of be like Christian Kirk, I believe last year or the year before. Yeah. With the Jaguars, where it's like, why did you pay this guy this much money? It's because of his value relative to your team. And that's what I think changes the conversation for Michael Pittman Jr. Is he a top five wide receiver in the NFL? No. But he means so much to your team, especially at this juncture of this new era. You know, everyone is very high on Anthony Richardson. I'm one of them. I think that he could be the guy. But he is not. We don't know that yet from a health standpoint. And even just a play standpoint, he showed promises as a player, of course. But it was a four-game sample size, very small sample size. So I know a lot of Colts fans have already crowned him. Oh, he's the second best, you know, he's potentially the, 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 the second best rookie in that class. Or he's, you know, uh, arguably on the same level as C.J. Stroud when they played in week two last year. He was the better player. Like, I get all of that. However, there's still going to be, to me, a gap between who he is now and the growth that he must kind of go through, and it won't always be linear. There's probably still some bad games he's going to have just because it's the NFL and it's hard. Everyone has bad games. So all that to say, to make his life easier, you don't let his top target walk for any reason. Like you said, Jimmy, the tag gives you relief, and, and, and believe me, even though they haven't used it yet, they're, they're, they will not be afraid to use it. Trust me on that. Like... Just talking to people around the building, talking to Chris Ballard himself on the record. You know, he said it is a tool and they will use it. That, that, to me, I have written this sentence and I feel like I plagiarize myself when I do it because I've written it so many times. 
it will be franchise malpractice to not franchise tag him at least if it's required, right? Exactly. There is no way I would even let him test the market. Like, he's gone. Yeah. He, he if he gets out into the open market, it's over. I'm not saying that you can't still sell him on Anthony Richardson, but not only do you have teams that could potentially outbid you, you have maybe better situations that come off of top of that in terms of where the NFL is and how valuable whiteouts are. And I get that, and I'll say this real quick. There's people who are like, oh, he has his farm here. He would never leave here. He's invested so much in the community and his property. Brother, there are farms farms all over America. <laughs> but what about those animals, James? I'm like, look, those you chickens can't can leave get the look, animals. Them chickens will be just fine. Can't leave the, the truck. So <laughs> the horse. I mean, it, I'm just saying. Send them to George Hill. He'll take care of them. Exactly. Which was a great story, by the way, by Mark Spears on ESPN. Check that out for sure. But all that to say, jokes aside, you franchise tag them if you have to. You negotiate. And again, come summertime, we're not talking about, oh, what's happening with Pittman. We're talking about, oh, he's a part of your future. We'll revisit this again deeper in the two o'clock hour, but we'll still have a little bit of time on the other side. So more on not just the franchise tag, but areas we'd like to see the Colts attack this offseason when we come back on Querying Company. 93.5107.5 The Fan. A lot of jumping around likely this weekend in college hoops. It's another big one on the countdown to selection Sunday and conference championship week. Just four games left for a lot of teams in college basketball, four to five, depending on where your conference schedule is in the countdown to conference tournament week. Of course, just a little bit ago, we learned that salary cap number for the NFL will be $255.4 million was announced today. Some serious change across the board Four teams around the league. We also have final numbers now as they're completely finalized on what happens if you tag a player. Wide receiver is the biggest matter of importance in this town when it comes to that conversation. $21.8 million roughly. So what you're looking at for Michael Pittman Jr. if the Colts ultimately do end up tagging him. James, you had mentioned earlier, and you have a piece regarding this as well, of top objectives for the Colts this offseason. You brought up the Christian Kirk parallel to maybe what the Colts would give to Michael Pittman Jr. Where I want to see the Christian Kirk parallel from them, and I don't know if they're going to do it. I don't know if this is finally the year that Chris Ballard takes a big, legitimate swing in free agency. Because let's be clear, he'll spend money. He just usually does it on lesser top-tier players that he gets high value I would say, yeah, b There's no doubt about that. Like He finds B-list players and can turn into high-level A-minus guys at times. like that, yeah. And that's useful. Yeah. But I feel like for the development of Anthony Richardson, it's time to get an A-plus, at least from a signing standpoint, further weapon out there. And at this point, I don't really care who it is from the free agent wide receivers. I don't care if it's T. Higgins, who it seems like might be tagged. I'm fascinated to see what the Bengals do there, but there's more rumblings that they might tag him because Joe Burrow values him so much, and you get one more year of him in this first window, if you will, title window of the Joe Burrow era. So we'll see what happens there, but I don't care at this point if it's Hollywood Brown, if it's Mike Evans, if it's Calvin Ridley. I want another big, proven wide receiver, and not just necessarily big in size, I mean, yes, big name, in this offense in the same way that, while he wasn't a big name, the Jaguars overpaid for Kerr a couple years ago. They did everything they could to make life easier for Anthony Richardson. Just imagine if it's Michael Pittman Jr., Josh Downs, let's say Calvin Ridley, just to say a conversation and not worry about like schematics and that aspect of it, just the weapons around him. And then, oh, what's this? The 15th pick in the draft? 
Oh, it's Brock Bowers? Look at all the weapons that you've suddenly surrounded your rookie quarterback with. Am I crazy, or is there potentially an avenue where not only do they retain Michael Pittman Jr., tag or otherwise, but they also go out and they take a big splash at wideout when free agency opens in a couple weeks? So, to your point on that, with the new cap numbers, the Colts are predicted to have $72 million, I believe, roughly, Mm -hmm. for free agency. And then obviously 22 of that will be going to Pittman on the tag if they were to tag him. Right. And they would leave $50 million on the table to spend elsewhere. So they have money to spend. I would say in an ideal world, you're like, yeah, they paid whatever receiver to add to what are what they already have with Michael Pittman Jr., with Alec Pierce, with Josh Downs. But... I don't know if I trust Chris Ballard to change that much in one offseason. Do you think it's the right move to focus solely on wideout? Or do you think they spread it out to other key needs? I think it depends on the draft. Sure. It's kind of a cop-out answer, but... No, you're right, though. That matters. If you're able to get... Because they're, they're saying this is supposed to be a deeper wide receiver draft. So even if you don't go wide receiver like with your first pick, which I would probably lean more towards a defensive back maybe... With the number 15 pick, if it's not Brock Bowers, obviously, or Marvin Harrison Jr. slides to number 15. <laughs> but um, I think that there is talent in this draft class that perhaps you can go there and get a cheaper upgrade for your wide receiver three or four. But I mean, I'm looking at some of the options here. Who do you think really fits? Uh, you know, you got McCole Hardman, you have. Mike Evans, which is obviously a big, big time name, big time player still at his age of thirty. Kelvin Ridley, who I, I would imagine the Jacksonville Jaguars want to bring back. Sure, I, I wouldn't just let him walk out the door. I think if he leaves, they have to trade Atlanta a second round pick. I don't know. I have to fully. I think I saw something on that from like Ian Rappaport or something mm-hmm. from that trade that they agreed upon when they brought oh, him over. Yeah. If they lose him, that they owe them a second rounder. Maybe yeah, it's weird. something. Yeah, it's very weird. See, this is why I'm not a contract guy because this stuff is too complicated for me. But all that to say, I'm like, who out here realistically would be your splash? Is it T. Higgins? Think they would go out I mean, there and try to play he, T. Higgins? It's been the dream for a while, but or, again, or, or, or pay Mike Evans? Like, I mean, these guys are expensive, and with Evans, at least he's not a very young guy. It was they would have to give Atlanta a second round pick per Adam Schefter hmm. if he resigns with Jacksonville. Oh, okay, all right, so, ah. so. We'll see how that factors in. We, we, this is there's a lot to pick off the bones there, and I do want to get into that. We'll get into that towards the end of the show. Maybe we we'll even have a conversation about that with our next guest, as Nick Bumgarner is going to join us. Covers the NFL at large. We'll get his thoughts on all things free agency. I tell you what, though, the uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. to 15 sounds an awful lot like Wemby to Indy all of a sudden, and that's a inside joke for those of us that have been around <laughs> for the entire summer. We'll step aside conversation with Nick Bumgarner coming up next on Query and Company. See, I feel like this is a song I used to play in Guitar Hero and be sweating in front of my TV trying to figure out if I got all the Definitely chords is. and notes right. So, <laughs> you're Going for the high score. Exactly. Um, welcome back to the DriveHewler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. You're listening to 107.5 The Fan. Query and company, Jake ditched us for <laughs> the heat and fun of a U2 concert in Las Vegas. 
You know, all I know is he has jury duty next week, possibly. So be back from <laughs> Vegas, you know, by then, Mr. Mr. Query. Leave your phone on. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you all know, listeners out there, Indianapolis natives, the combine is upon us. It's going to be here in a few days. I'll obviously be there. And we have one of my buddies, Nick Bumgarner from The Athletic on the line. He is what I consider to be one of the draft gurus. He follows this stuff a lot more closely throughout the year than me. So, Nick, how you doing? And what are your thoughts on just getting to this point in the offseason where it feels like things are heating up a little bit? Mm, good, fellas. I hope you guys are well. I mean, I'm really glad that they didn't move the thing from Indy, first and foremost. Like I, We talk about this every year. I was, actually, I was just talking to this uh, with Dane Brugler about this, actually, the other day. Like, if they ever move this thing away from Indy, I don't know what anyone's going to do because it's like the perfect city for all of this. So excited to get back and uh, get rolling. I mean, get got to get to St. Elmo's and some good steak going here this week, for sure. Or next week, I should say. See, Nick has already got it mapped out. St. Elmo's yeah. first, football second. You have to. You have okay. to have a strategy of where you're going to attack, and I'm glad Nick is savvy enough right. to know St. Elmo's has to be on the list. There you go. Exactly. So, right. Nick, obviously the – Colts are not in a position they were last year where we all knew they have to draft a quarterback. They don't have any answers at quarterback. They have their guy who they believe can be a dude. But at 15, where do you see them possibly going? And is Brock Bowers a legitimate potential pick for them considering how his value might oscillate between now and obviously the draft? I mean, if he falls to them, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he falls to them, that's that's got. I mean, and that's real. That's realistic. I mean, the the way that yeah, uh, the board is so quarterback dependent this year because so many teams need one. The Colts jump the line on that one. Um, you know, maybe that'll turn out to be smart on them, but they don't have to worry about it this year. You know, there's going to be some teams that have to reach and you know, go a little higher than maybe you would want, and that's why the buzz on. You know, J.J. McCarthy right now, for instance, is you know got him pushed all the way up to the top 10 or at least inside the top 15, which I think is pretty legitimate because while he's not a top 15 player, certainly not a top 10 player, you know, he's the next in line at quarterback and he's a worthy first-round pick and some teams just have no choice. So, yeah, tight end tends to slip anyway in most years. Uh, Bowers, I think, is a little different, though. I mean, he is... You know, there there's going to be teams that have him uh, certainly top five on their board overall in the entire class, regardless of position. I mean, he's that good of a player. Uh, I could see him going to the Chargers up there at five or six, whatever they're at. Um, but yeah, I mean, he could totally fall. And if he fell to Indy, that's it because Indy has knees, of course, but they could do a, a few different things. There's not anything they sort of have to do. But I think that'd be an awesome fit if he were able to fall down there and give them a, another anchor on, on offense to build around. Nick Bumgarner is our guest, senior writer at The Athletic, and does great coverage, among all things NFL, but especially around this time of year with the NFL draft. Nick, I've made it clear on this show a number of times, I'm an offensive first guy. I think a lot of people are. Like We love the high flair of high-powered offenses Mm -hmm. and big game-wrecking plays, and especially here in Indy when you have a young quarterback, assuming they bring back Michael Pittman Jr., it's nice to dream about the idea of them, whether it's in free agency or in the draft, getting another weapon like a Brock Bowers or like this wide receiver rich class, but let's say they don't yeah. do that. And my initial reaction is usually like, all right, they're going with somebody on the defensive side of the ball in the range for them. Why should Colts fans, if they are like me, they're offense first minded. Why should they still be excited if they go, let's say cornerback or an edge rusher. And if it's the latter, a spot that the Colts have kind of been seeking that next great edge rusher for this franchise. 
That's a great question because I think that those are two spots in particular, uh, especially corner and really edge too, but really I think corner where you could end up, if you're the Colts, you could end up with the top corner on the board. I just did my three-round mock a couple weeks ago, and I have Terry and Arnold, Alabama's uh, corner there, as my top corner. And I think he's a top 10 player, but I had him down there at the Colts because, I mean, there was nobody – you know, I mean, like, I couldn't get the corner thing started, and too many teams needed other stuff. And it was just one of those things that he got pushed down. And, you know, that's we're talking about a top-10 player that, that falls to you, and not, no question about it, I think he's a starter right away. A guy can come in and help your defense. A guy can come in and help, you know, help others around him improve. And I think that's the type of thing that if you're sitting in the middle of the draft like this, when there's so many teams that need a quarterback, that's what you're really hoping for. Like, Jared Verse would be another one if he were able to fall, and I think he could, the Florida State edge there who's really freaky you mentioned Leitu Latu uh, as another one there in that range but Verse is another one that's you know in any other year you know he's we're talking about him as a top 12 no question about it but you know with the quarterbacks the way they are I don't know maybe somebody slides or falls and the same thing could happen to these receivers I don't think that that's a slam dunk I don't think it'll happen but like if somebody slides and falls so who's to say I mean it's not impossible how much easier does it make life for the Colts if they decide to go defense and let's say solely in the cornerback room when they feel like they already have a great piece having potentially hit a home run with Juju Brents where they took him last year. Yes. I mean, I think that if you do that and you get a guy like Arnold or even Quinion Mitchell that falls to you there, um, I think both those guys would be certainly uh, worthy of that spot where the Colts are at. I think that it allows you to do other things beyond that when you start to go, you know, into the second round beyond. You mentioned receiver earlier and obviously Pittman's part of the conversation. But you know, I gave him Jalen Polk, uh, the kid from Washington. I mean there's so many good receivers that are going to be there in the second round that are going to be starters. Troy Franklin, Xavier Worthy, uh, we mentioned Polk, Malachi Corley, the kid from Western Kentucky. There's so many good players that would be able to come in and be quarterback friendly receivers that can Roman Wilson's another one that would be, you know, a best friend type for an Anthony Richardson, a guy that is always open, is always on time, doesn't drop passes. And those are the players I feel like the Colts need to surround him with. And there's a lot of guys in that second round area there. I wouldn't do it with their first round pick. I think it's a little too high. But if you get the rest of that stuff off the board, if you get like a starter on defense that just falls to you, it allows you to do so many different things, you know, the rest of the day. So, Nick, to pivot a little bit away from the Colts to the Lions, which is the team that you really focus on Mm -hmm. throughout the season, Obviously, we saw what they were able to do last year, what they built. And I thought one of the interesting questions that was asked to Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network yesterday was, you know, could they be the blueprint for other teams, you know, as far as taking a player versus is the positional value where it needs to be or modern NFL, is it worth to take a running back this high? All those things. Um, What do you think of their need perhaps to kind of tweak some things to – get right back there because I thought what Dan Campbell said after they lost to the 49ers was was real like you know this might have been our one shot however they have mm-hmm. some pieces still there to get back there obviously it's gonna be harder um, things change it's football people get hurt all those things but what about them kind of gives you a little bit of a uh, uh, I don't know I want to say hope is the right word but just the idea that okay it is realistic for them to make this a sustained window for a Detroit city that was kind of starving for this yeah, and I think that's the most important part is that can be it can be a sustained window, and I think that's real. I think that's that is very real. And and he's right about you know you get that far and you never know, right? You never know if you you're, you know no matter how good you are, you just don't know how how that's going to go. And, but I do think that if you look at their roster, you know they have so many good. Their best players are all on rookie contracts. You know, I mean, except for Goff, 
Um, you know, Amara St. Brown, Penisoul, Aiden Hutchinson, Laporta, uh, Gibbs, you know, now adds into the fray. Lee McNeil's another one. They, they just have done such a great job um, with their top, I would say, like four picks of the last three or four years, uh, really the last three, Brad Holmes' drafts. Uh, and they just haven't missed, you know, on really hardly any. And, and when you build your team, you know, through the draft, and Colts fans know this too, I mean, it, Ballard's whole thing got a little obviously off off kilter, but that was the whole idea there too to begin with, is build the team through the draft, have a good foundation, and then try to extend that window as long as you can to run a quarterback. And I think that, you know, they, they, they like where Goff's at. I w- I'm very curious to see what that contract's going to look like. I would assume there'll be an extension for him. I don't know what it'll be. Um, but I do think they have a little bit more of a window than maybe people might have re- realized because, yeah, they're, they're, they're one of the youngest teams in the league. And I think that that is a blueprint uh, in that it's just about drafting the best possible player you can that fits your locker room. And if, it doesn't, if the guy doesn't fit your locker room, then don't do it. And I think that that's pretty much the simple principle uh, they tend to use, and it's worked out pretty well so far. Nick Bumgarner of The Athletic taking some time with us here on Query & Company. Nick, a year ago... Dalton Kincaid, Michael Mayer, Sam Laporta, to name a few, headlined what was a, a pretty strong, especially towards the top, tight end class. There's a couple teams. Cincinnati was linked towards a tight end potentially last year. Kansas City is going to be preparing for life after Travis Kelsey. And here locally for, I mean, not like that he's going to retire, but you know what I mean, building towards who the next tight end is in that system. And for the Colts, I feel like with what Shane Steichen wants to do, they have a lot of good tight ends that don't do a ton great, but they do a lot of things well. And maybe a tight end like Brock Bowers this year is a piece that is perfect for a Shane Steichen-led offense. If they don't take him, I mentioned the prospects a year ago, it seemed like there were multiple avenues you could go down. Is there that same level of high-end depth at the position this year when it comes to tight end? No, it's not nearly as good. Last year's was darn near generational in terms of the number of guys that you had in the top 100. That was, that was a bit, a bit, a bit of a reach or a bit newer, I should say. Um, but this is not, this isn't bad. This is, uh, you know, maybe one B I mean, close to, I think the position in general, if you really follow college football is getting deeper uh, as college teams start to understand what to do with tight ends uh, more, you know, they're starting to let them, you know, block more and, and have more responsibility in that and not just ask them to be big, long receivers that go out there and stand around. So there are more guys, you know, like, uh, you know, if, even into the third round, I think this year that you can find a starter, uh, you know, Theo Johnson's a kid from Penn state that had a really nice senior bowl, Kate Stover from Ohio state. And the other really good one uh, beyond Bowers, uh, Jatavian Sanders, a kid from Texas, who's really, really athletic and could do a lot of things. Jaheim Bell from Florida is another one like this. So there's a lot more um, NFL-ready tight ends, I should say, coming out in the last maybe three or four years than we saw in the previous handful because I think the position has changed and developed into more of a, you know, are you looking for an inline guy? Are you looking for a flex guy? Are you looking for a guy that can do both? And I think that the a lot of college teams are starting to understand what pro teams are looking for. And so you got guys that are sort of properly compartmentalized and they know what they're doing, and they know what they know what's asked of them. So I think that it's better than it's been, but it's not as good as what it was last year. Last year was really, really good. One of the best we've seen in a long time. So I can't I can't have you come on the show, be a draft guru slash analyst, and not ask about Justin Fields and mm-hmm. the Chicago Bears and Caleb Williams. And if you put your GM hat on, Nick, right now, which way are you leaning? And more realistically. What makes this decision so unique, perhaps, 
than other quarterback decisions because obviously I would say usually every year it's like, oh, do you trade up to get a guy or do you just draft this guy? But like they have a guy who could be really good. And then they have a guy who could be really good, who might be a lot cheaper as well. So, or which way are you leaning and how do you see that kind of playing out? Well, I think the, the, the uniqueness of it is that you've got a guy who, yes, like who, who is so talented and everybody knows it. And you, you as the franchise have failed him. You know, and I think that's the situation. He's getting to the end of his deal here now, and you failed him. You're really not any closer to competing than you were when you started. And when you take a guy like that, you have to be ready. The Bears, when they took fields, really when the Bears took him and the Lions didn't, like that was the great test case scenario for a lot of teams that they should copy that. Yes, because the Lions were not ready for a quarterback then. If they had taken Justin Fields back in 2021, it would have been the same thing. It would have been a mess. And they they would be in the same situation right now as the Bears are in. So, you know, I, I think it's a unique situation from that standpoint that you're going to have to probably maybe move on from a guy that you really hate to do that because he's got so much ahead of him still. And that's sort of indicative of how, you know, football is these days. These quarterbacks need more time when they come out. But not all of them do. And I think that when you see a guy like Caleb Williams sitting there and you have another pick in the top ten, you have a chance to add, you know, Caleb Williams and maybe a top receiver with him. I mean, that's like franchise changing, I think. And I think that that's something that you just can't, you know, ignore or turn down no matter how much, you know, you you like how Justin Fields improved last year. And I think he did, you know, improve quite a bit. But, like, if you don't do that and Caleb Williams goes somewhere else and you have to sit there and watch that and Fields doesn't turn into basically a pro bowler next year, you're regretting it, right? Like, so I think that that's the line you're walking. And I would assume that, you know, Fields is traded and, you know, the Bears – take Caleb or, you know, Drake May or whoever it is there at the, at the top. I would assume it's, it's Caleb and they move on from there. But that's it's such a tough spot because they're in this position. You know, they, they made that great trade with Carolina, but, like, if they hadn't done that, it would be just a total mess. So uh, it's weird for sure, but I think that's it's something where they're going to have to do something here soon because uh, there will be enough suitors for field. There's enough suitors. He's a talented kid. There will be enough out there for him. The Athletics' Nick Bumgarner is our guest, covers the NFL at large as well as the NFL draft. Nick, wide receiver in this draft, we know it's, at least on paper, appears to be deep and there's going to be opportunities to be able to select one that could maybe not fully change the fortune of a franchise right away, depending on where you're picking, but could definitely help speed up offensive development. Kind of a right. two-angled question here. I don't think the Colts are doing this, but just to you know stir the pot a little bit for the Colts fans and then get realistic with it. What are the chances a team moves up for Marvin Harrison Jr. in this draft? I know that's the hardest part of mocking, but what, what, are the, what are the chances something like that happens? And then smaller scale, maybe more realistically, is it worth it for a team, not for Marvin Harrison Jr., maybe somebody in the 10 to 15 range like the Colts are, to trade up to get one of the top shelf wideouts in this deep class? I do think that that's possible, and I think not just for Marvin there. I think Malik Neighbors and maybe even Odunze, uh, Roma Dunes the kid from Washington. The you know we've talked about this a little bit. You know Dane internally, the line between and Harrison is number one. And my board, I mean Harrison on some people's boards is going to be number one player in the draft. Um, but the line between Harrison and Neighbors is not as wide as people probably think. And I think that speaks more about how good Neighbors is as a legit top five pick or a legit top five prospect. And I think some people are also going to have Roma Dunze up there at maybe five or six. And I think back to a couple of years ago when, you know, some teams moved up and moved, we saw Devonta Smith, the Eagles moved up to get him. Um, you know, I, this, this feels familiar to that class a little bit and that you've got three guys at the top who I do think are possible, you know, game changers who can come in right away 
and help whoever is throwing to them make make them look a lot better. You know what I mean? I think beyond that, it gets a little trickier, and you got guys that are going to help offensive de- development, like you said, guys that are going to come in and help an offense get a lot better and help a situation. But those three at the top uh, are really, really good, and I could definitely see you know somebody down there who's got the assets to do it say, hey, we got a situation here where we like everything, but we need to be a little bit more explosive. Let's go get one of these guys because they can change everything. And they're cheap, like I said. I mean, it's rookie deals. So I can see that happening for sure. I think that's uh, absolutely a possibility. Nick, I kind of want to take a step, I guess, back big picture-wise, and I got a kick out of this when I was looking at some people like, you know, do you go the Patrick Mahomes route and do you just draft a bunch of guys and, and get guys on one-year deals to – build around your quarterback and I'm like well that's not that's not your quarterback <laughs> you know so right. um how have you seen maybe the wide receiver market not market but the draft itself shift over the last few years where it seems like you can get a number one guy like oh, yeah. ready to go from day one as opposed to maybe I don't know 15 20 years ago how have you seen that kind of shift with just the way offenses have been built in the NCAA until now where you can have a Jamar Chase come in and be your number one right away. You can have Marvin Harrison Jr. potentially be your number one right away. And others we've seen throughout recent years. Yeah, I love this conversation because it is, it's changed right before our eyes. And it's happened in the last like five to ten years. And it's like something that everybody saw coming and we knew it was happening. And I'm not sure that the receivers playing today quite understand it, right? Some of the, some of the money they ask for. Because I, I always say all the time, I'm like, you guys aren't getting that money anymore because there's Every year, it's not just this year, it's not just last year, it'll be next year and the year after that. The, the way that teams started to move away from you know, the spread and shred with the power spread stuff and start, now we're going to spread out and throw the ball. So now you know, you're finding players, uh, you're better athletes at a younger age, and you're having them play receiver. And it used to be you know, in the 90s, 2000s, and in the early 2010s or even, it would, be, it would take a while for a college receiver to truly understand everything that needs to happen, and it would be a process. And that's just not the case uh, at all anymore. You see guys walk in the door as freshmen and are just absolutely outstanding, uh, and that's where the best athletes tend to go. I always joke about it. Um, you know, you go to a recruiting camp anywhere in the country, uh, you know, a top 100 camp or whatever, and the line – uh, at receiver is five times as long as a line of corner. And it's like the coaches will always joke about everybody gets paid. You know what I mean? Like they need corners, the same thing, but like the best athletes want to play receiver. And that's, that's how it's been. I feel like for quite a while in the way that offenses go today, you're hundred percent right. You don't need to overspend or do anything crazy. You can consistently find and replenish yourself uh, at that position. If you're smart about it in the draft and most teams, I think you should be taking one every year uh, in this stretch because there's so many good ones every year that come out. Um, that you'd be almost doing yourself a disservice if you didn't look at it. Nick Baumgartner of The Athletic taking some time with us. Nick, I want you to put on your GM hat as you cover all things NFL, and I know the draft is your wheelhouse around this time of year, but it's pertinent to the Colts because there's a lot of moving parts with free agency and then the draft right around the corner after that. So if you put on a GM hat and you look at the Colts, they have the luxury of, as you mentioned, having jumped the line, at least they think they did. They have their quarterback, Mm -hmm. and he's on that rookie pay scale, and philosophically people will vary based on how aggressive do you get and where do you get the most aggressive from a spending standpoint while you have the rookie quarterback to maximize your window. In the Colts case, it's a de facto rookie season, so you're also taking into account the fact that you want to make life as easy on him as possible. For the Colts, let's say they keep Michael Pittman Jr., whether it's a tag or a contract. Let's say they get it done and it's not a massive cap hit to where they still have money to spend. When you look at this draft... And look at this crop of free agents at wideout. 
where are the Colts better served to benefit Anthony Richardson? And maybe they do both, but where are they right. better served? Take a big swing in free agency along with Michael Pittman Jr.'s retention or hit as many homers as you can in the draft at wideout? I would do it in the draft. I would 100% do it in the draft, especially like we talked about earlier, what you know the offense they run with what Sykin does. They're, the guys that are coming out now, they don't need time to adjust. They understand what's going on. They understand what's being asked of them. I, I really, I think that coaches and just the system, it's been forced because of the way the game has changed. But the position, they're just ready. They're more ready to go. And, you know, I like Josh Downs a lot too, but you could use another one. You know, I mean, there's, there, you need more reliable people around a young quarterback like that. Like that's why, and CJ Stroud has been, uh, was terrific by himself, obviously, right? But if you look at the people that are around him and you look at the, the players he was able to throw to this year, it helps an awful lot to have, you know, talent like that that he's throwing to. I mean, it, it helps to have reliable people, and they did a good job of working trust and all that sort of thing, too. But guys you can trust, so a lot of times with quarterbacks, a guy your own age, a guy that's closer in age to you, a guy that you can understand and hang out with, because that's, that's a lot of it, a guy that you're going to spend time with and say, okay, all hell's breaking loose on this read. I need to find somebody. Where's my guy? You know, you need to find as many of those guys as possible to put around him, and I think that you do that in the draft. And, I mean, yeah, I think you, you still do your due diligence and, and free agency and everything else, and obviously you work what you got to do with Pittman, but you got to continue to sort of find guys in the draft that are going to help your quarterback uh, along the way as you develop them. Well, look, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Nick. I will see you in a few days here you in Indianapolis. Um, take care, my friend, and thanks for coming on. All right, guys, take care. And that was Nick Bumgarner, my co-worker at The Athletic, does a lot more work than me around this time of the year because he is deep into film study, you know, the Senior Bowl, the you know East-West Shrine Bowl, all these different things to get us prepared for mock draft season, which is what we're in right now. And I thought he made a very good point, Jimmy, to emphasize that they have to build this thing through the draft. And, and I think that's just the nature of what Chris Ballard has always done. And I also think it's what they kind of have to do given the options that they have. You know, even though they have a lot of cap space, I don't see them going out there paying Pittman and then also paying another receiver. They probably got to find a pass catcher, whether it's Brock Bowers or a receiver or someone else in the draft. And, and I'd be okay with that because as Nick alluded to, there's a lot of talent in this draft, and as I told Eddie off air, I kind of believe Shane Steichen can turn players or make them a little bit better than maybe they are sure. because of the scheme stuff that he's able to do with them. And by that same logic, though, I would like to see it happen. If they're going to do that, and they're going to do it in the draft at wideout, I would like to see it happen in the first round. I would like to see them go That's fair. with a position player, whether it's trading up, whether it's Brock Bowers, but the idea of them having that opportunity in front of them and then instead of taking it in the draft... Trading back. <laughs> or or if it's an edge rusher or a cornerback, I'm sure it'll fit well in a Gus Bradley system, but I, I would rather it happen offensively and assist him as much as possible, but that's the beauty of mock draft season. We have plenty of time to discuss that. We're going to step aside. When we come back, we will shift back to the Pacers. Nice win for the Pacers last night over the Detroit Pistons. Still have a couple games left in this homestand. Caitlin Cooper of Basketball She Wrote covers the Pacers regularly. will join us to give her perspective on where they're at post-All-Star break when we return on Query and Company. That was <laughs> one of the funniest clips from the past weekend. You're listening to Query and Company. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Jake is out, but we have Caitlin Cooper on the line and 
I believe the last name is Cooper, not Clark. She can explain it, but she covers the Pacers for basketball. She wrote, has her own, you know, media platform. I encourage you all to support a Patreon, all those things, buy some shirts, buy some merch. Caitlin, how are you doing? And what was your reaction to, I guess, being included in the best shooter uh, ever conversation? <laughs> hey, guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm very surprised. I, I regret to inform everybody that I won't be entering into the WNBA next year, and I'm probably not going to be available to compete next to Sabrina against Stefan Dame at the All-Star competition. <laughs> a lot of people have been mixing up our names, so I will give I will give Chris Mannix a bit of a break there. He did say that he had been reading the article that was written about me at Indie Monthly and that that was in the back of his head when he went on there to do that particular video spot, and then he ended up saying my name multiple times, so I feel bad about that. But I guess it's, it's a much bigger compliment for me to get mixed up with her than it is for her to get mixed up as me, so we'll go with it. You know what? You're too modest. I'm like, yeah, you got one goat getting mixed up with another goat. Exactly. But um, speaking of, obviously, the team you cover, the Pacers, got a win last night. There were some shaky moments in that third quarter where I thought defense looked optional, which tends to be the case sometimes with the Pacers. But what did you think of their, I guess, response to coming out of the All-Star break and obviously getting a win when it could have been looked at as a trap game? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was kind of a microcosm of what we're going to be looking at over the last 25 games, right? Because three important trends, Tyrese Halliburton and his health, what does he look like? The ongoing and building chemistry between him and Pascal Siakam, the more that they get reps together out there on the floor and what that looked like at the end of the fourth quarter. And then also, as you just mentioned, the defense. They gave up more points in the third quarter than they gave up in the entire first half. And I think there's probably a lot that you can break down with that. I think in the first half, some of that, I have a lot of questions for the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> they ended up playing an 11-man rotation 13 minutes into that game. They're all bench unit. When Cade and Jaden Ivey came out of that game with about four minutes and 30 seconds left in the first quarter, the Pistons were only down six points, 24 to 18. By the time that quarter was over, they were down 42 to 25. So get out scored 18 to 7 by pretty much the Pacers' second unit. It's a little bit questionable for me that a rebuilding team that has less than 10 wins this year is playing an all-bench unit, let alone an all-bench unit with players from other teams who got traded there who weren't on those other teams' rotations. So, you know, Cade and Jaden barely end up playing 30 minutes last night. Benedict Mathern played 35 as a starter, and his team was up by 30 points at one point in that game. Also, Detroit, pretty shaky with a lot of the turnovers. They had a stretch at the end of the second quarter with, you know, three turnovers in a row that the Pacers were able to capitalize on. They took a lot better care of the ball in the third quarter and as you said defense a little bit optional for the Pacers I know that Rick Carlisle mentioned after the game that he did something he doesn't normally do which is to have them stay there and watch film of that third quarter and see some of you know what the breakdowns were because they got beat on like the same empty side double drive play a couple times on lob guys getting behind them obviously some kind of sloppy outlet passes where even Tyrese throws one off of Miles's back that ends up turning into a pick six so just some stuff to clean up there. But I think that those that game really did speak to what we're going to be looking at for the Pacers headed into hopefully what will become a playoff berth for them. Kaitlin Cooper is our guest, covers the Pacers for basketball, she wrote. Kaitlin, last night, Benedict Matherin gets the start. How do you evaluate his performance and how he is meshed in with the different lineup combinations that exist for the Pacers in the Pascal Siakam world in the last couple of weeks? I was actually a little bit surprised that they did look at Ben, to be honest with you, because I think that in a lot of ways, 
he's been really successful as a bench player because he and TJ McConnell mesh really well with one another. TJ is somebody who, a little bit differently than Andrew Nemhart and Tyree Saliber, and TJ likes to attack baseline, and he typically will get two feet in the paint. It's incredibly hard to keep him out of the lane. That really kind of unlocks Benedict Mathern as a cutter. TJ looks for Benedict as a transition. There's some set actions that that bench unit runs that the starters don't really run that suit Ben pretty well. So I actually thought it was a possibility that they might end up looking at Ben Shepard and just putting him into that starting lineup in place of Aaron Neesmith because that lineup minus what Aaron does as a shooter is a little bit more of a defensive bent. So I thought maybe they would look at Ben, but as far as like actually Benedict Mathern in that game, probably not the most efficient outing for him going five of 14, one of three from three. He did have some pretty decent passes. I felt like there were some times, particularly in that third quarter. One thing that I still want to see him work on is he caught a pass in the left corner. That was an extra swing pass from Siakam had, plenty of time to shoot and ended up kind of being a little bit hesitant, put the ball on the floor and then tried to split between two defenders to finish on the left side of the rim. That ends up being a very fast breakable miss that Kate Cunningham turned into a pull-up three the other way. I think a lot of times with him, he's so good at playing out a triple threat and what he does with his jab step, but he can rely on a little too much when he could be taking the inflow shots that come to him. And then that will make the defense respect him a little bit more. So I think, too, like headed into the All-Star break, I know that they had mentioned that like health-wise he had been dealing with some things and they didn't think he looked quite right, which is why he sat out that game against Toronto. So I'm sure he's probably still working his way back into things. But I think overall, I, I generally like for the rest of this season at least what his fit is with the second unit because his usage shifts quite a bit when he plays with Tyrese so, and when he doesn't. So I think he, his usage goes up by about 5% when he doesn't play with Tyrese and that kind of allows him to establish himself a little bit more as a scorer and play with those bench units that are now kind of being joined with Pascal as a little bit of a through line as well. When I look at what they've been building the last couple of seasons, and I think a lot of people view it the same way the Pacers most certainly do with where they drafted Benedict, they hope that his final form and his growth and development is a starter instead of being a, well, he's valuable. Because you're right, I think a lot of people view him right now as he is so valuable with that second unit, what he brings to the table, and players in front of him when you have Aaron Neesmith getting those minutes in the starter role instead – he fits great there, but ultimately he should ascend at one point in time if they're on the right trajectory internally to a starting role. I think you kind of answered it there at the end of your observations from him, but is that type of fit possible for him by the end of this season? In the final 25 games, how big of a surprise for you would it be if he has developed enough to be a better fit as a starter for this team come postseason versus being that first man off the bench? I almost think that some of that has to do with the other players on the roster. For, because in order for him to start, that would mean that you're taking Andrew Nemhart out of the starting lineup and what the trickle-down effects of that are. So if Aaron Neesmith continues to start at the three spot and you were to remove Andrew Nemhart, that's going to put Aaron Neesmith back in the position to have to defend a lot at the point of attack. And there was a two-game stretch where he fouled out trying to defend against Jalen Brunson, and then he fouled out again in the next game trying to defend point guard. So at that point, they put Andrew Nemhart in. That allows him to do that role, allows Aaron to defend more naturally at his more natural position against wings. And then also it keeps TJ McConnell in the rotation. And I think it seems pretty clear to me that Rick really values having him off the bench and what he provides is a spark plug. And that was even evident last night in that initial run that they went on and what TJ brought. 
And if you end up moving Andrew Nemhard back to the bench, that gets a little bit trickier, I feel. And I just, I just think for the rest of the season, it more just has to do with what the overall fit is. I do agree with you that you're hoping that when you take Benedict Mathern at number six in the draft, that he does become a starter. And I still think that there's place and time for that. I don't think it necessarily has to like get contentious between he and, and Nemhard at this given point in time. I just think, and numbers wise, it reflects better in terms of how many points Purple and had possessions they're outscoring people by when Nemhard's out there versus Mather. And I think right now to fit with Tyrese, you either need to be somebody who's a really good knockdown shooter and can space around the ball and shape up around the ball, relocate in the flow game that the Pacers play, or be somebody who's going to be protective of Tyrese on defense and be able to take on those two assignments, which I think is why they've kind of floated back and forth between Buddy and Nemhard before they ultimately ended up deciding to move on from Buddy at the trade deadline. Caitlin, I want to pivot back to Tyrese, who sort of had a deja vu moment last night where he made a bunch of threes at Cambridge Fieldhouse. We saw that in the All-Star game, but obviously this game means a bit more for their standings for their season. And afterward, he said he feels fully healthy. Your reaction to that and what that could mean, because obviously we know the leap he's taken this season and the level he can play at when he does feel like himself. Yeah, I don't know that he still looked by my eye to be completely 100%. I think I think he mentioned after the fact that he was tired from having played more minutes than what he's been used to be doing. And I think that showed up at times where you could see him on defense kind of leaning over, holding his shorts at times where it looked like he needed <laughs> to still get back up to that amount of game shape. But something that he mentioned that I do think has shown up quite a bit in the past eight games before this is he said he got to his one dribble three going to his right. And Tyrese is a little bit quirky because a lot of times right-handed shooters will typically step back or escape dribble to their left, but he's somebody who readily does that to their right. But over the last eight games, we really haven't been seeing him do that. He hasn't taken that many one dribble threes, period. Like a total of eight. Last night he took two, and he was creating quite a bit of separation. And why that matters is going to launch off of his left leg, which is the hamstring that he injured. So to see him actually get to that twice in addition to the two dunks, one being a reverse dunk, that's better than he's looked during the stretch when he came back the one game against Portland and then when he came back again the second time. I think that's an important strike for him because he is so – when he goes against switches, he's very dependent more so on creating separation with the shot than he is with what he always drives the act to for natural and footwork path on that was a good sign what we should expect us. So what you're saying is Tyrese is going to be the dunk contest next year after the reverse dunk. <laughs> you heard it here first, I mean, folks. Caitlin Cooper. You get, you, you get a boost in the dunk contest from scoring, from what I could tell, if you are an all-star. Like, you get padded a couple extra points just from that. You mean jumping over a chair isn't significant enough? Uh, someone's seated? It's 5-5? Five, five. That, that doesn't deserve more more points? Is that what you're talking if about? You, if you put on a glove, you should automatically get at least two extra points. <laughs> well... The last thing I'll ask you on on my end when it comes to the Pacers is when you look at the the structure of this team, do you think now is the time to sort of evaluate them because they have their pieces? Obviously, Aaron Neesmith, unfortunate he's out. But, I mean, how much longer do we look at them and say, oh, they got to play more games together before you can say this is who they are and who they'll be come postseason play-in, playoff time? 
right now some of the stuff with Pascal and Terry just needs to be given time because one moment right before the All-Star break in that game against Toronto when Pascal scored that basket at the rim, I believe was their go-edge was significant for me because prior to that, Tyrese had only set a total of seven screens for Pascal Siakam. Caitlin, I, I apologize. We, we we heard what you were saying there, but it might be on our end. It might be on your end. Um, the connection has started to fade in and out there, and the, the content is great, but we're so close to break that we don't have enough time to give you a call back. So at minimum, we want to give the shout-out where we can. Find all of her work on her Patreon. Uh, basketball She Wrote does a great job covering the Pacers, and Caitlin, thank you so much for making time for us today. Hey, thanks, guys. That is Caitlin Cooper, and that is the way that radio works sometimes because as we all chuckle to ourselves right there at the end, connection's back, but just, hey, that's the name of the game sometimes, James. That's life, man. Radio is hard, <laughs> but definitely a shout-out to Caitlin for coming on and really all of our guests today because that was, that was fun. We're going to step aside when we come back. We'll have final thoughts on a monster weekend in college hoops. We'll, of course, have some bets for you as well. And we pen James' mind one more time in the lead-up to Combine Week next week, the next step in the Colts' offseason, a critical offseason for them with a de facto rookie season coming up for Anthony Richardson. Bets, college hoops, Combine analysis. Up next to close out a great week on Query and Company on The Fan. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- This is how I win. Today's plays of the day, looking ahead to the weekend. Some action today and then some future bets for a good weekend slate. First for tonight, we'll take the Minnesota Timberwolves on the money line. They welcome in the Milwaukee Bucks. Also today, a little Ivy League action. We'll take Cornell to win on the money line over Yale as the race for Ivy League seeding heats up with their conference tournaments in the coming weeks. This is going to be a bet that I think we make throughout the year, and we'll see where we're at. Uh, We're 0 for 1 to this point, so down about a unit for this selection. Leo Messi will find the back of the net on Sunday when the... When Inter-Miami, excuse me, takes on LA Galaxy, uh, he's plus 100 right now as an anytime goal scorer. There's no odds out yet for Purdue or Butler. I'll lay whatever the points are for Purdue, and I'm going to take Butler to win on the money line. I assume there'll be plus money on the road against Seton Hall. Eddie, do you have anything this weekend? I do not. Nothing from the slate from for you? From a betting perspective, I do not. All right. Well, at minimum, you know you can find Eddie's coverage as lead producer of Pacers basketball as the Pacers are back in action on Sunday. That'll against be right here on these very Luka airwaves. Luka Doncic, and you know, that would happen to be Carlisle's former superstar, so... There you go. Well, the Dallas Mavericks trip coming yeah. into town. Additionally, this weekend on the fan, Soccer Saturday is Greg Rakestraw at 9 to 10 a.m. tomorrow, as well as Pacers Weekly with Pat Boylan, of course, from 10 to 11. And it's a monster weekend for high school hoops, especially in girls basketball. It's the state finals, class 1 through 4A, right here on these very airwaves. Gets started in the morning all the way up until... The evening slate, so 1, 2, 3, and 4A. Going to be a great time for high school hoops. If you don't have the opportunity to get to GameBridge, heck, even if you do, be sure to be locked in here on the fan for another great state finals in girls basketball. James, we've still got a little bit of time left, and we mentioned it earlier in the show, but for those that are just joining us, James, of course, beat writer for the Colts. Among other work, you see him uh, moonlighting as a Pacers beat writer at yes, times sir. too, yes, whatever sir. they ask over at The Athletic. But busy week for all of us, but especially on your end at the Combine, 
Where do things stand in terms of your checklist on the Colts beat in this next step of the offseason? Obviously, the Pittman stuff will work itself out. That's not priority number one, I would say, during the combine week. However, I'm curious to see what Chris Ballard has to say Wednesday about the draft and his approach to it, and also just the offseason as a whole, because we haven't had a chance to really talk to him about that. We talked to him a little bit at the end of the season, but that was more of like recapping what happened, you know, immediate things like Anthony Richardson's health, all those things. Obviously, we'll get an update on Anthony Richardson, which would be huge to get from Chris Ballard if he provides one. We saw the video of him throwing. But then beyond that, I know he will be coy with a lot of his answers, but then it's kind of parsing through that, reading through the tea leaves to see what could possibly change for this offseason to kind of change the results he's had in Indianapolis because we know this is a guy who I believe is going into his eighth year in Indy, hasn't won a division title, became one game was one game within that last season. And so the expectation, I think realistic expectations are to go out there and win the division next year. So excited to hear from him. Also excited to hear from Shane Steichen because obviously he'll have a huge role in the decision-making of the team. But beyond that, for me, it's just looking at the players who are in the positions of need and kind of evaluating for myself who could possibly be a good fit. So I'll spend a lot of time talking to the DBs, the cornerbacks, the edge rushers. Those are the three main positions, I would say. Um... And also, you know, pass catchers, wide receivers, things like that. So I'm excited to get out there, get busy. But um, I guess it's probably less stressful in a sense because there are so many directions they could go in and, and there's just not as much um, it's, tension. It's way different than a year ago. Yeah, I mean, last year it was like, okay, I got to make sure I get to not only the podium where this quarterback is talking, but it's to get there very quickly because there's going to be 50 people asking questions as well. So um, a little less fanfare with DBs, cornerbacks, edge rushers, wide receivers, but um, a lot to obviously get accomplished this week. And it's just an an easier frame of mind knowing that they have so many different paths, but as Nick Baumgartner, who joined us earlier in the podcast, will be up to search Query and Company. Wherever you get your podcast, he covers the NFL draft and the NFL for the athletic. They feel like they have that answer at quarterback. And so it opens doors and remove some of the tension as you highlighted from a year ago that would have been present knowing that you feel like you have the quarterback and you can build around him james it's always great to have you in studio my friend i i, I know that there's a close bond between the three of us having yes. in here throughout the summer last year and always good when you're here i know you this is the second show of the week for you but as you joked about back in your usual time slot great to have you back in always a pleasure yeah appreciate you having me obviously i'm envious of jake being out in las vegas right now <laughs> but Always fun to come on, talk indie sports. And I really felt like this has become my home after the All-Star game. I was like, man, this is really cool. We're going right from this to the combine. I was even getting offended when people were talking about the city and all that (laughs) stuff. So um, I'm excited for what's to come. Well, we're glad to have you a part of the indie family and always good, as I mentioned, to have you back in studio. No doubt our paths will once again cross on these very airways sometime soon, whether it's as an interviewee or whether it's right back in the co-host chair. Always appreciate James Boyd. You can subscribe to The Athletic, get all of his work there, and follow him on Twitter at RomeoVilleKid. Again, as we mentioned, big weekend in college hoops. Purdue takes on Michigan as they try to solidify where they are at as the right now, it appears, top overall seed in the NCAA tournament ended today. IU against Penn State for Mike Woodson's safe win that game. They're not really playing for anything anymore other than pride. So hopefully they get that done. Again, Butler and Seton Hall 
this weekend as well as Butler is still vying for a spot in the tournament, and that's effectively a play-in game for them. John will cover all that and so much more in a look ahead to the combine. That's right, JMV is back. He's live from GD's Bar and Grill over on 71st Street. Jake will be back in on Monday. Until we talk to you, keep it right here. Route JMV is next on The Fan.